That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. Now, built by high-caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball-faced truth. Well, we made it to the national championship game. College football's pinnacle. Going to kick off in about 90 minutes time or so. Washington Huskies. Michigan Wolverines, John Catano will be joining us in any moment. He is calling in right now. We will get to John Catano, the host of this here show. He is live in Houston. I know it took him a little bit of creativity to get down to Houston this weekend with all the uh, different complications, but hey, we're not co- we're not complaining here. We're just embracing the spectacle that is college football's Biggest moment, the national championship game, NRG Stadium, Houston, Texas. John Cazano is going to be checking in with us once an hour, each hour on the show today. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with you, and you can chime in as well at 503-417-7575. But without any further ado, JC is ready from Houston. Let's go to him right now on the line. Set the scene for us, John. Great to talk to you. How are the vibes at the set of the national championship? Well, I am inside Energy Stadium, and I'm down on the Michigan sideline, kind of the Michigan end zone where they are warming up right now. And, uh, you know, a lot of fans already inside the stadium. You know, obviously we are well in front of kickoff, but, uh, you know, just a lot of anticipation and a lot of talk about this game. I think we're going to get a great game. It, It just has that feel, and it'll be interesting to see how these two teams come out, guys, to, you know, will one of them, Will one of them be a little wide-eyed, or are they ready for the big stick? It's going to be fascinating. Um, when you talk about players and teams being ready for the big stage, that kind of describes what Washington has been all year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Michael Penix Jr., to me, I mean, obviously we've talked about this on the show. He's the best player, right? He's the best player in college football. And he is a guy that, uh, you know, if, if you're talking about MVP awards, he is the MVP uh, of this game, of this, of this tournament, of the season, because of what he has done for Washington. I, I just don't think they're anywhere near where they, uh, where they end up without Michael Penix. And it'll be really interesting, guys. You know, it's not lost on me that I am standing on top of turf here inside the stadium and uh, his receivers – in an indoor does that give Washington an advantage? I mean, I, I have to think it does. 
Uh, speaking of Washington, have you seen Dylan Johnson yet out there? See what he looks like. See if he's moving around all right. First of all, I yeah, I have not yet seen Dylan Johnson. There's some talk about. You know, I was interesting in talking with some of the Washington media that cover that team on a regular basis. There is some some you know sentiment there that does it matter all that much? You know, when you are playing between the 40s to have Dylan Johnson. Because what Washington wants to do is Washington wants to throw the football. Where it really could hurt Washington if Johnson is not healthy is it hurts him in the red zone. He's been really good in the red zone. He, uh, you know, he makes Washington multidimensional down there. So if there's a uh, injury to Johnson or he can't go or he's not 100%, you know, really to find options in the red zone. And that's the biggest thing. You know, if you're Michigan. You know, you are coming to this game, and you're not thinking about Justin Johnson and having to stop him. You'd rather have to deal with him than Michael Penix. So, you know, I, do, I think what Washington is going to want to do, because they have all their receivers healthy, is they are going to want to supplement that run game. If Johnson's not 100%, look for a lot, you know, make some short passes, look for them to get other guys involved. It hurts them down in the red zone. We're talking to John Cadano. He is live on the field at NRG Stadium in Houston right now. Have you seen Softy yet walking around down there? He's down here somewhere, but it's really interesting. There's a lot of Pac-12 people here. I'm told Dan Landing is in the building somewhere. Ooh. I know that um, you've got you know Yogi Ross of the Pac-12 Network and Ashley Adamson walking around. And, you know, there's a real pro Pac-12 sentiment coming from a lot of people inside the conference. Even though technically, you know, after this game, the program becomes a Big Ten team, right? Even though these are two Big Ten teams, I think there's a little bit of pride for the Pacific time zone. Forget what Softy was saying. I think there's some pride and an element of pride. You know, can the Pac-12, who has been shut out of this game for six years, can they, uh, can they not only get back here, but can they – can they get a W in the last game of the college football playoff four-team era? Well, we've talked about Washington and how they get Ws this year. The last five games, John, all been one-score games. We've seen the point spread go a little bit in Michigan's favor. It's up to five and a half now, which you know five is kind of a dead number in football anyway. So if it gets to six, I think that's a bigger movement. But it seems like a lot of money is coming in on Michigan. If Michigan's to win this game, do they have to – be in control of this game and win by double digits? Because if it gets close at the end of the game, isn't that exactly what Washington wants to do? Yeah, that, that is what Washington wants to do. Washington, you know, you watch an NFL game. We've all been in this situation where you watch an NFL game and maybe a team gets down by two scores. But we know in the fourth quarter, in the final two minutes, it's going to be a one-score game. That's what Washington does to you, and it's because of Michael Penix Jr. So, yeah, I think Michigan would be more comfortable – taking the air out of this game and trying to, you know, get up a couple scores and make Washington play from behind. But, uh, you know, you look at Michigan's season, they've won some close games as well, including the, the Rose Bowl semifinal game and the Ohio State game. They've been in close games as well. So, you know, I, I think both of these teams know how to win. Clearly, they're both 14-0. They're both really good. But I'm standing right now down in the Michigan end zone where the offensive linemen are warming up. These are big body guys. These are the, you know, big 10 physical offensive linemen. They, if Michigan wins this game, it's because this offensive line controls the line of scrimmage and controls the football.
So sometimes we talk about the importance of the beginning of the game and, and the coin toss. Whoever wins, what should they do with it? Do you think that if Washington wins the toss, they should take the ball first, try to make a statement early? Or how do, how do you see the beginning of this game fitting into the overall structure of the entire 60 minutes? Yeah, it's a strategy thing. I, you know, we talked to coach. I've talked to coaches over the years that are adamant that they want the ball in the second half because they have more intel on their opponent and therefore a better chance to to score with that that second half possession than they do at the beginning of the game. And frankly, I think that's why you see so many coaches defer when they win the toss. So I think whoever wins the toss defers. But I don't think it really matters for Washington. Michael Penix. And those receivers, if you give them the ball first, they're going to make it their mission to get seven. If you give them the ball in the second half, they're going to try to steal a a score at the end of the first half and get the ball in the second half. So, you know, the final two minutes of the first half, to me, are a very important period in this game because, uh, you know, Penix has used that. You know, we saw Oregon utilize that in the the Pac-12 championship game to get back in the game. So, you know, if you are trailing and you can get a score right before half and you can get yourself back into the football game. We're talking to John Cazano from NRG Stadium in Houston. He'll be calling in again uh, at the 4 o'clock hour and 5 o'clock hour where Washington's taking on Michigan in the national title. Uh, I've got some more football-related questions for you too, John, but your your eye is always looking for stories. Um, I'm curious what's what you're seeing, what's going through your head right now as you're thinking about possible stories either related to the game or or adjacent to the game as college football reaches its final day? Well, it's really interesting. You know, I, I went over, there's NRG Stadium, which I'm inside right now, where they have Michigan and Washington are warming up. And, and they're not in pads yet, guys. They're, uh, they're warming up in, in their, uh, you know, kind of their, their, their workout clothes and mm-hmm. sweatshirts. But, but um, you know, they'll get the pads on shortly. But I went across from the stadium because I got here super early. And they have kind of a convention center that's across from the stadium called the NRG Center. And they were having the fan fest over there, the fan tailgate and the VIP parties that were all coordinated and set up over there. And and I went over there because there are a couple of Oregonians um, who are in charge of uh, the creative design for the college football playoff and those events. Uh, Ryan Capel with Space Monkey Designs, this guy who was the creative director, for the football playoff, and you know, he brought me into the VIP party, and, uh, and before they opened the doors, and I got the chance to walk around in there, and then they were talking about the fan tailgate parties, Washington and Michigan, obviously both brought a ton of fans to this game. The parties were supposed to be like 4,500 uh, limit, and the Washington contingent called on Thursday and said, "Hey, we have 3,000 more Washington fans." that want to come and so i was in the building when they opened the doors and it was really interesting to see 7500 washington fans kind of hooting and wolfing and walking (laughs) through the center compared to 4500 michigan fans who i got to be honest i don't know a polite way to say this but the the michigan fans are older and a little slower moving is that that a nice way to put it um you know i just think the demographic is just an older fan from michigan who's here and maybe you know, maybe that's part of making that trip. And the Washington fans, the Washington fans are just younger and more vibrant and, and, and in greater numbers. And so I think, you know, keep an eye on that as this game unfolds. Will there be a little bit of a 
pro-Washington crowd? I don't know. I'm looking around right now, and I can't really get a feel yet because it hasn't fully formed and, and filled in. Well, it almost it almost seems like there's a sense a sense of uh, you know just nervousness with the Michigan fan base because they've been here for three straight time you know three straight years of the college football playoff. Washington they've been you know underdogs going back to the Oregon State game then the Oregon game and then you know in the first college football playoff game it almost seems as if like there's a nervousness of the Michigan fans while Washington like doesn't even know what to how to act because they're just excited to be there but they're so good they may just end up winning this game. Yeah, I think. There's a sense, too, with the Washington, um, you know, the, the, the window of opportunity for Washington. I mean, this is Michael Penix Jr. is not coming back next year. So, I mean, this is an opportunity for Washington. If you are going to see, seize the moment, this is the moment, you know. And, and I think there's a little bit of urgency and a celebration around that. And on the Michigan side, I think people look at Michigan football and go, hey, they've been here. Around, they probably uh, are a threat to come back next year or the year after. So, you know, I think there is a little more, you know, for the Washington fan looking at this game, there's some urgency around, um, you know, just knowing that here's an opportunity, a window of opportunity. But you're right about Michigan. If Washington can get ahead in this game, Stephen, to your point, I kind of wonder about the pressure that that would put on uh, the pressure that would put on the Michigan team. You know, they find themselves in an opportunity trying to play catch-up against a team that's got Michael Penix, that's not a comfortable position to be in. Yeah, that's going to be, you know, play, having them play from behind is definitely the the way Washington wants to go about winning this football game. Uh, John, we appreciate your time. We'll check in with you again at the top of the 4 o'clock hour. I want to ask you about the both coaches involved in this game and uh, a little bit more about that Houston atmosphere. So we'll check in with you again here in a little bit from Houston. Thanks for the time. Sounds good, guys. Thank you. There he is, John Cazano, the host of The Bald Face Truth. We'll talk to him again at uh, 4 o'clock and uh, again at 5 o'clock, just after the game kicks off. He'll be calling in from NRG Stadium in Houston. 503-417-7575. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for JC today uh, as he's at Houston. Uh, I'm curious your prediction on the game, and you can call in and offer it. Uh, John's taken Washington. Stephen and I, we've been on Michigan pretty much since the beginning of last week. Now, it's not cool to bet against Michael Penix Jr. It's not, you know, sexy to uh, to fade the dogs. And that's not really what I'm doing here, Stephen. Honestly, the football heart in me wants to pick Washington. I mean, what a story and, and what an electric offense. The disclaimer being, I'm not a diehard Duck fan. I know a lot of our listeners are. A lot of our listeners are diehard Beaver fans. I'm curious what Beaver fans think going into this game, too. I mean, you were two points away from beating the at least national runners-up, potentially the national champions this past season. Like, that's how good ball you were playing at, at one point, being 11th in the CFP rankings. But going into this matchup, I guess the, the football logic in me just thinks Michigan's going to be too tough of a matchup in the trenches on both sides of the ball. And I just feel like if you're going to win the trench war both sides – you're probably going to win the game. I don't know if that's oversimplifying it. Yeah, and it's never going to be a good feeling going against Michael Penix when he's throwing 50-yard bombs down the field just on point to Roma Dunze. Like, that's never a good feeling. And so I'm with you on that. Uh, but I think you're right on with the trenches. Like, John even said it right there in his interview. The Michigan guys are different-sized human beings. Like, the Big Ten, they grow bigger out there. That's just how it is in Big Ten football. And I think that Michigan wanting to run the football, that's what they want to do. And Washington, with their weaknesses, their weakness is defense. I mean, I know they've played better the last you know half of the season, 
but that's still the weakness of their team. I think Michigan's going to be able to slow this game down and run the football when they have to. I also think Michigan may open it up just slightly with J.J. McCarthy and Roman Wilson. We saw that they do have some explosiveness in that Washington defense, Judah. They've been okay. They've been okay the last six, seven weeks of the season, but they forced two turnovers against Texas. Texas made a lot of false starts. They were behind the, line, behind the chains. Then they would fumble the ball. If they didn't do that, Texas was going up and down the field on them the entire game. That's the sneaky part about that Sugar Bowl that I think people are forgetting is, like, honestly, Texas probably should have won they the game. They should have won the they game. they just take care of the freaking rock. Like, honestly, the, the fumbles totally did the Longhorns in. I will say, at some, you know, big-time moments of the football game, we saw Quinn Ewers was not up to the task. He just wasn't quite that level of quarterback. And obviously, number nine in purple that night was I think Washington will probably wear their their white uniforms tonight because I think they are the visiting team and Michigan's the home team. We'll see uh, when they when they come out and actually play the thing. But high leverage moments advantage Washington, I think. But I'm totally with you in that. This comes down to probably you know l- discipline, lack of penalties on either side wins the game, and turnovers. It's always going to come down to the turnovers. And I think Michael Penix. As skilled and as aggressive he is, that aggression sometimes leads to interceptions. He can be picked off. And we also saw what Michigan's pass rush did against Alabama. I know Washington's the Joe Moore Moore Award-winning offensive line, best offensive line in the country. At least that's what they want you to believe. But I don't know, man. I still think Michigan has the upper hand rushing the passer in this game, slowing down the run. And that's the other thing. Dylan Johnson getting a bad wheel. At best, he's got a bad wheel. That's going to really hamper whatever you know version of a run game allowed Washington to be effective, allowed them to be balanced, and it's going to be just that much more difficult, I think, for them to be at their full offensive potential. But look, they proved people wrong all year long, and, and so the, they could very well do it again. And the Rose Bowl, you know, to, <laughs> going against my point, Michigan was the one that made the mistakes, right? So maybe yeah. it's another game where Michigan makes all these mistakes and Washington right. capitalizes on them again. You know, Michigan, you know, fumbled the punt. You know, they, they recovered the punt and then recovered the one yard line. They JJ McCarthy throws the pick, very first play. Luckily, they called the Alabama guy out of bounds for Michigan. So maybe McCarthy and Michigan come in, may you know, just have mistakes again, and Washington capitalizes and Penix scores right away. I just think that they got the jitters out of them in that first game, and they know what's on their plate here with Harbaugh's going to have them ready. So I, I don't know. I think it's going to be a pretty well-played game. I don't think there's going to be a lot of mistakes made in this game. And I think Michigan's going to try to slow it down as much as they possibly can and then make plays you know, downfield when, they, when, it's, when it's available. Washington has to put more guys in the box, things like that. So, And then defensively, you talk about Michael Penix Jr., how do you guard him? How do you defend him? You got to get pressure on him, but you can't be blitzing him because he is so good in the pocket. You know he's not necessarily a scrambler, but he can move around in that pocket. You got to get pressure on him. We saw yeah. Michigan did against Alabama. Now they blitzed Jalen Milrow. They got to him. I think that they're going to do that. They're going to disguise some things. It's going to be a well played game. I just think Michigan has the better talent, the bigger athletes, and I think it's going to hurt Washington to start the game. Then towards the second half, that's when Penix and Washington gets it going, gets back in the game, but Michigan may just hold on. Yeah, 503 417 Who are you rooting for, and who are you picking to win this game? I'm taking Michigan. I, I think it'll be a close game, but that line movement in favor of the Wolverines makes me wonder if, if people just think that this is the right matchup, but Penix is too good to get blown out. That's my thing, man. He's too good. The receivers are too good to get blown out in this game. I think we're in for a special one. Let's go out to uh, Sean, who's called in from Vancouver. <laughs> hey, Sean. Hey, hope you guys are doing good. Yeah, uh, man. So I'm, I'm rooting for Washington. Um, I'm, I'm a Georgia fan. 
but I'm rooting for Washington. I think uh, Phoenix has to be explosive, has to, um, and they've got to stop the run. If uh, they can't stop the run, and we saw what Texas did, then it's going to be a really long day because that's what they'll do. They'll possess the ball for long periods of time with that O-line. The other thing Penix has to do is recognize the blitz and and be ready. And, you know, if they can do that, they've got a, they've got a puncher's chance here. So I'm rooting for them. No doubt about it. Uh, Sean in Vancouver, another Georgia fan. We got a lot of Georgia fans that listen to the show. Uh, I know Roy, you got Sean, a lot, a lot you of got a big voice in the SEC. Big SEC footprint. Let's go to Paul Feinbaum on line four. No, I'm just kidding. Paul didn't call in. Uh, Ryan from Oregon. What's up, Ryan? Uh, hello. I grew up in Spokane, so I was a big Cougar fan. I moved over to Portland, obviously turned into a Duck fan. Hate the Huskies, but still would love them to win just for the Pac-12. I definitely think it keys on the running back, how he uh, starts off the game because the receivers need the defense to kind of be able to, uh, to watch the uh, run game very closely. So if the running back can't come out and, and make a statement for Huskies, I think Michigan will roll them over. They've up, they average 19 sacks this year. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to get to the quarterback and some turnovers and I just think Michigan will probably win by 10 if the uh, Huskies can't get the run game going. Yeah, it's a sneaky good point because you think aerial attack with the Huskies, but Dylan Johnson's been a valuable, valuable piece. Even in the Oregon game, back to title game in Vegas, like Dylan Johnson, low red zone, punching it in. He had a couple touchdowns early in that game, helped change the shape of that game, and it just allows Washington to breathe uh, really nice and easy whenever they're getting a little too one-dimensional, which they they got at certain points of the season. But then at nut-cutting time, clutch time, give me number nine, you know, all day, every day. But, you know, Michigan bringing the blitz, they'll certainly get some creative looks. You brought up Jalen Milrow, Alabama, succumbed to that a little bit. I think Penix's experience probably favors him in that because Milrow is still really green for as athletic as he is. And Penix has seen pretty much everything that that you can see. Going up against the Duck defense, I think, you know, does him a, a lot of, you know, those reps are huge for a, for a Michigan defense because Oregon's defense was nothing to sneeze at either. They weren't, like, elite, but they were really good. Yeah, and the Bama offensive line you know, has noted struggle, struggled notably yeah, all yeah. season long where we talked about the Washington offensive line. Different stories. So I, I think you're right. I think the combination of the line and Penix's uh, you know, veteran leadership, Caitlin DeBoer, how smart he is. I mean, I, it's, it's going to be tough. It's going to be an interesting game. I, I just think that the overall strength of strength of Michigan is going to be able to stop the strengths of Washington. Could be wrong on that one, uh, but I, I think it's going to be a close game. I think it's going to be decided late late into the game, probably with Washington trying to come back with Michael Penix slinging around. Well, he's going to throw a pick tonight. That's that's my call. That's your bet, huh? That's your best bet? Whenever I say my best bet is like, there's going to be a pick six. Michigan pick six tonight. Pretty much book it. Uh, 503-417-7575. Who are you rooting for and who are you picking to win the college football playoff national championship? We checked in earlier with John Canzano, who is live in Houston. We'll do it again at 4 o'clock. He'll be calling in at 4 o'clock and at 5 o'clock, so don't go anywhere. You can hear from JC live from NRG Stadium in Houston. He's taking the Huskies. I'm taking the Wolverines. Steven also on the Wolverines as well. Where do you fall at 503-417-7575? Later on in the program, we're going to talk all things NFL and the playoff pictures. My Seahawks coming up short. Uh, but you know what? That That's okay. I think I've come to terms with it. By tomorrow morning, I know I'll be all up in my feels again. So uh, that's just the evolution of a Seahawk fan. 
you get disappointed, you know, you, you have a resolution, and then you get angry all over again. So I'm looking forward to that uh, throughout the week. But we've got great wild card matchups, uh, coaching firings and vacancies as well. Any thoughts on that, you can chime in at 503-417-7575. You're listening to The Boldface Truth. Back to The Boldface Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Who are you rooting for and who are you taking to win? The Washington Huskies representing the Pacific Northwest in the national championship tonight kicks off in a little over an hour from Houston. John Cazzano checked in with us at the top of the 3 o'clock hour. He was on the field. He was in the Michigan end zone. Uh, He was watching the Michigan offensive line warming up, and he said, yeah, these boys are big, right? I feel like, remember Ducks would go up against Ohio State's and Terrell Pryor's of like 2009 Rose Bowl, right? And that was the thing, right? Like, they couldn't hold up physically. Well, wasn't even in the national, in the first college football playoff? Well, that too. The 2014, you know, playoff championship with a four-seed Ohio State Buckeyes that year down to their third-string quarterback, uh, Cardale Jones and Zeke Elliott. And obviously, they ran, you know, all over Oregon. By the way, that game was more of a game than you think. Like, if you go back and watch the full broadcast of that, it was, you know, Oregon shot themselves in the foot in so many different ways in that game early. Dropped passes. So many drop passes. I can't remember the receiver that was dropping all the passes in the first half, but it was a rough go of it for Oregon. They had, there were plays to be made for Oregon in that football game, and they just kind of handed it to Ohio State. And then they got physically dominated in the second half of that game. Do you think that is in store tonight? Is Michigan the same type of physical, relentless team that Ohio State was in 2014? Cardell Jones, there isn't... J.J. McCarthy is a totally different type of quarterback and will not run the football at all, pretty much the way Cardale did. Blake Corum is a very good running back. Edwards is a good backup running back. That offensive line is in the business of mashing people, We'll see if the Washington defensive line, uh, 91, I, I know I'll point him out a lot and I call him by his number because I can't really say his name, Letu, Letu Legasanoa, something like that. Uh, in the middle, he's going to you know, he's gonna have a tough time. Braylon Trice was all over the place in that Texas game. Holy cow. Did number eight make a huge difference? And he is a possible first-round pick in the NFL draft, maybe second-round pick, but he'll be, he'll be playing on Sundays, uh, like Brent Musburger would say. But what do you think? Is it is it going to be an overwhelming advantage where Washington is just kind of helpless at the hands of Michigan's physicality uh, when Michigan is on offense? That that's where I kind of go to. I, I think it's going to be a very tough time for the Washington defense to hold up against the uh, the Washington defense against the Michigan offense. I was I was looking up the Texas game, so I was thinking that Texas in my mind I didn't want to say Texas, but uh, going back to that game, Judah, you know, you look at how Texas. What they wanted to do, they wanted to run the football. They wanted to do that against Washington. Six and a half yards of carry against Washington, 180 yards. Quinn Ewers threw for 7.4 yards per pass attempt, 24-43. Not great, but 318 yards. Like I, I think this Washington defense is still vulnerable, even though they've been pretty solid this last half of the season. So I think for Michigan, they know that they're not going to win in a shootout. They can't win in a shootout against Washington. So what they have to do is they have to keep the ball out of Michael Penick's hands and the way you do that is run the football and to slow it down. And that's exactly what Michigan has done all season long. Michigan plays a game 
all their games is you know low possession. That's what they want to do. And so I think for Michigan, it plays right into their hands of how they want to win the game. 503-417-7575. Who are you rooting for and who are you picking? The other thing that, you know, I, I keep coming to the turnovers. I think, you know, turnovers are going to determine the game one way or the other. Um, and I think Michigan's going to be the team forcing the turnovers. And therefore, I'm going to take Michigan to win uh, and control the game from, from start to finish. But uh, if Washington's the team, you know, winning the turnover battle, it's just the same thing that they did against Texas. I could see them winning and, uh, you know, kind of being up by 10 in the fourth quarter. Like, that's how vital I think those extra possessions you're talking about are. And then on the other side of it, Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy, you know how many interceptions he's thrown this year, Stephen? It's not a lot. You know, he's really safe with the football. Four. He's thrown four interceptions. And I looked at his game log. He threw three in one game. And it's not against anybody that you'd expect. He threw three of his four interceptions against Bowling Green. Week three of the season. Watch out for those Falcons, that Falcons defense, though. Exactly. Is that what they are, the Falcons? Golly. Got to be. That, that Falcon defense is swarming, probably better than the Falcon NFL defense. hey Uh But then he threw one against Maryland, and I know he obviously should have had the one against Alabama, so, you know, great assault there. But you're talking about a guy that really, really takes care of the football. So for Washington to force a turnover, it's not likely they'll get an interception. I'm not saying that they, they won't. But it's not likely because, you know, it's a pretty safe aerial attack and it's a schemed up passing game that Michigan has. They're going to need to strip the ball. They they might need a strip sack to do it. They might need a strip of Blake Corum to do it, although I wouldn't count on that. They might need a special teams snafu to go their way in order to get Penix an extra possession with good field position and get them the lead in this football game. That That's the recipe to win for Washington. Because if Michigan can just run a regularly scheduled program, as it were, for 60 minutes of football, they're going to win this game. Uh, back to the phone lines we go at 503-417-7575. Let's check in with Don in Beaverton. Hey, Don, how you doing? Good. How you doing? I got a prediction here. I got uh, a blowout. I got a Michigan blowout. I got J.J. Uh, throwing for 350 yards, four touchdowns, and winning uh, – uh, the MVP, and I got Penix throwing two picks, 150 yards max passing. Wow. You know, whenever you call in, down, I can count on you on a bold prediction, so I appreciate that. Uh, he said a couple turnovers from Penix, 350 for J.J. McCarthy passing. So that opens up kind of that other, you know, side of this, Stephen. We're talking about Michigan ground and pound just control this game with their running game, very much within you know the range of outcomes of this football game. But there's a version of this, and I know that you know you've heard others talk about this, where Michigan you know unloads the passing attack on the Husky defense because they're vulnerable in the secondary, at yeah. least on paper. Yeah, my man Josh Pate. You know, I love to listen to Josh Pate. He was talking about this how you know the Washington pass defense is going to be one of the worst that Michigan has faced all season long, and. The last time, the other, only other team that they played in league that was at a you know a defense about as bad as Washington, maybe a little worse, was the Purdue game. Michigan scored forty-one points on them. JJ McCarthy threw for three hundred plus. So, I'm not saying that it's going to be a game where Michigan's like you know what we're gonna we're gonna sit, you know air it out. We're gonna let McCarthy try to prove that he's a first you know first day quarterback, a top ten pick in the NFL draft. I don't think it's going to go there. But what I do think is is I think that Michigan's going to be able to run the football, and then that's going to open up some type of play-action pass down the field to Rowan Wilson, who was a big play guy. Yeah. Maybe a pass out of the backfield to Donovan Edwards, who's a big play guy as well. Like I think it's going to be able to open it up so Michigan can get some bigger plays with the run game setting up that pass game. 
as Washington tries to sell out to get that run. And so I, I think right now it just the things that Washington does well, I think Michigan does them even better. And I think it's a strength <laughs> on strength type of thing where Michigan's strength is going to outdo the Washington. Strength. Oh, you sound like softy right now. It would be embarrassing. Embarrassing. embarrassing Michigan to lose. If Michigan lost this football game. Embarrassing. If you don't get UW now, you might never get them. Uh we'll we've got to play some more softy audio uh for those to whom it tickles. Some people just get angried by the guy, but he incites a reaction. He he had an epic Friday appearance. We'll play some of that audio uh, coming up later in the show as well. The other kind of aspect to this whole spectacle in this game that I'm thinking about is is what do you, what's better for college football? Michigan to win or Washington to win? And I kind of think that it's Washington to win. The game is better than better for college football because it just and that's maybe more the regionality to it for me. Like it's better for college football for there to be a West Coast power again. Oregon has been right on the brink of being that, but they have yet to break down the door the way that USC did with Pete Carroll in the early 2000s. And they were the unquestioned West Coast dominant power. Like, you couldn't even doubt them anymore. They kept winning and winning and winning in big games. And then when Texas would topple them, it's a big deal. You know, if you could establish Washington, and I'm not saying they would be this annually, this does feel like an opportunity for that program that I'm not sure will exist next year, the year after that, because Penix is a one-of-one, and I think those receivers are pretty special as well. This feels like a not a once-in-a-lifetime, but a once-in-a-long-time opportunity for Washington Husky football. There's also the you know subject of Kalen DeBoer's future at Washington. I know there's a new AD there, and Troy Dannon, and he's been working on this contract, and Kazano was talking about it last week, that they've basically got it in hand. They just don't want to sign anything until... You know, after the championship game, which basically college contracts, as soon as Kalen DeBoer wants to leave, he can leave. It's basically how that goes. Uh, how long will Ryan Grubb be there? I don't know. The key offensive coordinator. He's probably a head coach, if not next year, because it's a little late in the game, maybe the year after that. Just it's fascinating. But what do you think is the best case for college football tonight, Stephen? Washington winning this game or Michigan winning this game? I think it's Washington. And I think the fact that the Pac 12 is. You know, going away, and Washington is joining the Big Ten, it's going to add even more credibility to the Big Ten, saying, you know what, yeah, we'll take you, Washington. We'll take you, Oregon. Uh, you know, we, we at the, Initially, we didn't necessarily want you, but we wanted USC, UCLA, they wanted that L.A. market. But, you know, we'll, we'll throw you in there, and now it makes the Big Ten look even better, even stronger going into the season next year, where if Michigan wins, yeah, the Big Ten already had Michigan. They're not adding a national champion to their roster uh, of teams in their conference. I also think it adds a lot of intrigue to what Jim Harbaugh does. If Michigan loses, what does Harbaugh do? Did he get his job done? Did he do do the job that he wanted to do at Michigan? He didn't get a title. He got to the CFP three different times in a row. I think for Michigan, if they win the national title, Harbaugh's gone almost for sure. But if they lose, is the job done or is he coming back? 503 417 Let's go out to Ed in Lebanon, who's called in. Hey, Ed, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. The first quarter is going to determine the outcome of this game. And here's the deal. It's about ball control. Who controls the game is who starts with the football and scores first, and the other team has to play catch-up. And when in the Pac-12 championship game, the Huskies got the kickoff, chewed up six and a half minutes, only scored three points, but Oregon's offense stayed on the sidelines and didn't find their rhythm till they were down 10-0. 10, 10 
And and that was a huge factor in that game. I think it will be a huge factor in this game. And if you're Washington, you want the opening kickoff because Michigan is going to chew clock and grind you and put you in a hole early. That's my prediction. I love it, Ed, because, look, there is a part of me that used to kind of poo-poo the thing. Oh, it's so important who starts with the ball first and all that. And I'm like, dude, it's a 60-minute football game. We get equal number of possessions for each side. Like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But as I've thought about it more and kind of this year watching the Seahawks and watching a lot, of t- like, the shape of the game is impacted by what you do, you know, starting with the football. Now, in the NFL, pretty much everybody defers, unless you're Ja Alexander and you want to put your defense out there, which is totally not the same as deferring. Ja, we suspend you for a game. You're suspended. Uh, but if you're Washington, I think you bring up a good point. That's why I asked Kanzano in our first segment when he called in from Houston, if you're Kalen DeBoer and you win the toss, do you receive? And are you the first one? Because d- doesn't the game feel different? Washington, 7 nothing, 9.59 left, first quarter. Doesn't that game feel different than Michigan, 7, Washington, nothing, 7.35 left, first quarter. Here comes Penix for the very first time, down 7. Does it matter to you that much? Because to me, I-, I feel like I would want to start with the ball if I'm Penix and the Huskies. I mean, obviously you want to be ahead. You don't want to be down 7-0. Heck, if you're Michigan and win the toss, do you take the ball for that same reason? But I also think... We overrate, you know, get it out first, especially in college football, a little more than we should because there's so many momentum swings in college football. I mean, there was numerous games, the Alabama-Michigan game and the Texas-Washington game, where it seemed like, oh, Alabama's going to win this game easy. They're going to win this running away. Then you look at it in the first half, even Michigan, they were up at half. It seemed like they should have been up by 28 points. They were up by what, like seven? And then in the Texas-Washington game, everything's going Texas way. Fumble, Washington recovers. Washington, you got this win. Turnovers change Turnovers, and right? then, then the penalties, the injury to Dylan Johnson, momentum swings. I thought for sure Washington was losing to Texas going on that final drive. So I think, yeah, <laughs> like, <too>. so like, <laughs> yeah, like it, it does matter to get up 7-0, and I understand the college point. I understand your point, Judah. Like, it would be great to get up 7-0 if you're Washington. But yeah, Michael Penix Jr., if you're down 7-0, like, not a big deal. Especially because you one play, yeah. you can throw it to a Dunze for 50 yards and a touchdown, and, and you're it, right back in it. And in theory, you can finish the first half with the ball and start the second half with the ball, right? And that, that may be even more around, momentum. Which, and the caller brought up the Pac-12 title game in Vegas when Oregon went down 10 nothing in the blink of an eye and an incomplete pass off the forehead of the official. <laughs> but what, what did Oregon do on the wraparound of that halftime? They scored on both sides of that thing. With Penix on the sideline. got ahead in the game. To get ahead in the game. And then they lost a couple of key secondary pieces, and that's when Penix carved them up. And that's what happens. But Oregon got back ahead in that game because they scored at the end of the first half and at the start of the second half, which is what they were not able to do in Seattle, ironically, October 14th. I think they only got three points out of those two possessions. They couldn't score at the end of the first half because they went for it on fourth down in the red zone. Didn't get it, which I was in favor of going for it. I remember in the moment I said, go for it. And then they got only a field goal out of their first drive of the third quarter. So that wraparound, like, hey, start the game, try to go up 7 nothing. That's great. But what if you start with the football and you go three and out or you get zero points? Now that you feel like even more of a momentum swing. That could be even more of a momentum swing. Exactly. So uh, let's go out to Sam in Portland, who's called in online too. What do you think, Sam? Uh, listen, this is going to come down to coaching, period. There's great players on both sides, great teams. But I've been saying this since, you know, the first time that the Huskies beat the Ducks. Uh, nothing against Dan Lanning or Harbaugh. 
104 and 11, 2 and 0 in bowls, 17 and 2. Granted, in AIA playoffs, three-time uh, national champion in a lower level, but football's football. I believe it's going to come down to coaching and DeBoer. That's his record, 104 and 11. He's got two losses in like 20 some games in the playoffs, the college football. I think it's going to come down to, to, to coaching, coaching decisions. I think it's going to be 27-24 Huskies, and that's my call. Great game, I think, great players, but I think DeBoer is just going to out-coach Harbaugh. And that's coming from a, uh, a Beaver fan, I believe, Sam in Portland. That is a great point because DeBoer may be the best coach in college football. That, I'm like not exaggerating. He might be the best coach. He may just be one of those guys due to that goes on and does – you know, legendary stuff, whether it's in the NFL, whether it's at college football, like that's how good this guy this could be. Like, honestly, that's how good he could be, right? Like, look at his record. Caller said it, 104 and 11. The guy doesn't lose. Hey, legends, legends start somewhere. Exactly. So it may be one of those things where Washington has the coaching advantage with DeBoer and they're just not going to lose because they got the quarterback co- uh, coach combo and that's all you need. I, I think we are in for something special tonight. And I'm getting pumped just thinking about it. John Cazano is going to check in with us again in less than 20 minutes. So be here for that. He joined us at the top of the show. He'll do it again at the top of the 4 o'clock hour and top of the 5 o'clock hour live from NRG Stadium in Houston, which, by the way, will host an NFL playoff game in six days with the Texans winning the I bet division. they never thought that was going to happen. Yeah, they scheduled this. like, hey, no problem. We're not going to the playoffs yeah, anyway. Texans are making the playoffs. You know, we get a coaching change pretty much every year. And not De- only the Texans D'Amico not going to make the playoffs. Like, we're going to the playoffs, baby. We're not only going to the playoffs. We're getting a home game. Home game, baby. We're going to win the division. So plenty of NFL takes later in the show as well. Uh, Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic will talk Seahawks with us. we got to have a Seahawks postmortem. Uh, he'll join us in the 4 o'clock hour a little bit later on as well. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano. John chimes in with us again live from Houston at 4 o'clock. Be here for that right here on the Bald Face Truth. <laughs> Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. John Canzano will be calling in again from Houston in 10 minutes. Don't miss it. John called in from the Michigan end zone in hour one uh, to start the show. That was something. And uh, he's on the scene in Houston, and he'll join us again in 10 minutes. Be here for that. 503-417-7575. Who you're rooting for and who you're picking to win the game tonight. Uh, Stephen Vaughn, Judah Newby with you. Dan Lanning has been doing some TV work today for uh, for ESPN. I think that's interesting. I also wonder who reached out to who there to uh, for that opportunity because I think this is a good look for Lanning. He has a chance to get in front of a lot of eyeballs. With his rival, obviously playing for a for a national title, even though they played two games, you know, close together, and uh, in Michigan, obviously a huge, huge brand there. But two teams he's going to play next year. So a he gets to see him in person. Not that he needs to see Washington in person another time, but gets to see Michigan, and and he's got a chance to get in front of a lot of living rooms and eyeballs and and look good, sound good, talk good football. I think it's a smart move on his point on his part. He was talking about the Washington offensive line a moment ago on the ESPN set. Joe Moore award winning offensive line. I mean, they're the best in the country. I know they have really two great tackles on the edges. 
But how about like the interior of the offensive line? Well, you don't win the Joe Moore Award unless you're good. These yeah. guys are good up front across the board. They're really good at tackle. Um, but you're going to have to find some pass rush matchups inside. What We need to watch Jenkins tonight, see what he looks like, right? And see what Graham looks like inside. That's a, it's a great place to match up with these guys. That's what I mean. Like, he knows all the guys. He knows all the players. He's game-planned, you know, out of his gourd for these guys, you know, three times already, and it has come up empty in each of them, Stephen. But it's kind of interesting to see the Duck coach on Saturday ESPN here at the National Championship. Well, we hear him here all the time. I mean, he's he's good. He, he's he got a good, uh, you know, media presence about him. You know, sounds like, obviously, if he wanted to go into media, he could, uh, you know, right now. I yeah. think, like, that's how good he is. He's very charismatic, and I think, you know, it all started really to get the Nationals' attention during that Colorado game when he had that, uh, you know, the infamous, uh, in the dirt, you know, we play with our pads. <laughs> We're all about substance, that thing. And, uh, you know, now you get to see more of a personal side to him. And I think, you know, he's just great on there. So, yeah, I think it's a good little uh, thing by Dan Lane to get on there against your rivals with Washington and now Michigan, as you said, going to be a Big Ten rival. It says it's it's all good. It's all good situation there for the Oregon Ducks uh, head coach right there. Yeah, it's uh it's a good look there. Let's go to Sam in Vancouver on line one. Hey Sam, what do you think? Hey, okay. So first of all, no, no, and no. All I gotta say as a diehard Ducks fan for so many years, this is the least thing that I want to see. I won't be watching it. It's funny that you bring up uh, Dan Landing on the ESPN show and everything. Do you think Ryan Day would be on there talking about Michigan or Mich- or Harbaugh on there talking about Ohio State? That is just this, – this is the thing that really upsets me because a lot of the newer fans, all they saw was Oregon beating up on the Huskies. So to them, they, they, they don't think anything of it. But this goes back to the 50s with a lot of these Ducks fans. And if there's any real Duck fan out there who's – says they're real and rooting for the Huskies, I'm sorry, man. You are not any fan of Oregon if you're rooting for any team from Washington. And I just think it's ridiculous that now it's like when the Big Ten announced their schedule for next year, now people are paying attention to the Oregon-Washington rivalry? Are you kidding me? So this is the amount of where I'm like, you know what, we're not going to still get any respect in the Big Ten. You know, Washington will probably get it, USC. And, and I just, Dan going on there, Dan, now, now knowing that man, I'm a little upset, and and I'll uh, I'll take your guys' opinion, man. But go 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 Michigan, go Blue, whatever. But I ain't even watching it, man. It's a take, you know. And I think it's a lot of people feel that way. A lot of diehard Ducks feel that way. That's why I'm kind of fascinated where Duck fan comes out because there's a handful calling in all week saying, you know what? It's good for us. We Back look 12. we look better. If Washington wins the national title, I'm like, do you? And you're not a diehard Duck fan. I'm not a diehard Duck fan. But if I was, there's no chance I'm rooting for Washington. No chance. That's why it's a rivalry. Yeah, like there's no chance I'd be rooting for Washington in this game, no matter how how much better it would make me look. Guess what? You lost to them. You had a chance to get the national title game twice, and you lost to them. Hopefully uh, there's a chance for Oregon to turn that around. All right, we'll go to break. And when we come back, John Cazzano, once again, live from Houston, live from NRG Stadium, site of the national championship game. He will join us again coming up in five minutes. Don't go anywhere right here on the Bold Face Truth. B-F-F-T. Now. Built by high-caliber millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball-faced truth. Hour two, John Canzano will join us in moments from NRG Stadium in Houston. Join us in hour one. We'll do it again 
in moments as well. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, and you at 503-417-7575. Andy Staples of uh, College Football Media Dumb. I think he works for On3Sports now. He has tweeted a photo of the Pac-12 commissioner, the still Pac-12 commissioner, George Klyovkov, talking with our very own John Cazzato. And they uh, they seem uh, immersed in conversation. I don't know exactly what they're talking about, but we just tweeted it as well at 750 The Game on Twitter. Go check that out. Uh, give us your caption contest. What do you think George Klyovkov and John Cazzato are talking about? I said, right uh, hey, hey, thanks, bro. Now I have to cover the Iowa Hawkeyes and their punting. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, George. Now I got to go cover uh, Iowa football. Appreciate that. Uh, so that that's going on right now. So go check that out on 750 The Game on Twitter. That's uh, that's pretty funny. John is calling in right now. We'll get him on the line. Talk a little bit more about this game. Kalen DeBoer versus Jim Harbaugh. Who has the coaching advantage going into this one? We had a caller just a moment ago to finish our last hour who saw Dan Landing on the ESPN game day set, and he's like, dude, that makes me sick. I don't want my head coach talking about my rival in the national championship game. What am I supposed to do? I'm not going to watch the game now. Uh, so I, I think that's an interesting perspective. A lot of Duck fans conflicted. Let's go back out to Houston and talk to the host of this program, John Cazzano, right here on the Bald Face Truth. Uh, John, appreciate your time. There's a photo going around of you talking to George Klyovkov. Uh, our friend Andy Staples tweeted that out. Uh, how's George doing these days? Yeah, he, uh, I think, probably is counting the hours before Oregon State and Washington State make a change there. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I saw the Staples tweet, and I, I took a picture of George's shoes from up close. I retweeted that, or quote tweeted it with my photo, but just interesting to see him here. He's supporting Washington. Um, you know, he said that if uh, Oregon or Stanford or Washington State or Oregon State were in the game, he would be wearing shoes with their colors on it. So I think that's kind of interesting. To, uh, he's here. Uh, I think he knows. You know, he didn't say this, but I think he probably knows he's not in the plans for Oregon State and Washington State. But uh, Klyovkov's got a story to tell at some point, and I spoke with him for about 10 minutes before the game, and, you know, we started getting in the weeds on some of what happened to the conference and and uh, all the stuff that went down. But, uh, you know, I think the bigger picture is he kept saying, I don't want this to distract from what's going on on the field. I, you know, he, he even when I took the picture of his shoes, he says, you know, don't tweet the picture of my shoes. It's going to distract from what's going on on the field. But everybody else is taking pictures of his shoes, so I'm tweeting it too. <laughs> well, yeah, don't wear the shoes, man. Like, you know, uh, you know, you don't have to go into too much detail on it, but is he still kind of banging the drum of, hey, you just needed to give me more time? Yeah, I mean, that's what he said at the Sugar Bowl, and I think it's kind of ridiculous to kind of maintain that position. He, You know, I, I get it. He's trying to say that, you know, his whole – you know, he doesn't want to distract from what's going on on the field. Great. You don't want to be a distraction. That's cool. But you are here on the sideline, and you are saying things such as, you know, hey, if we only had more time, and how is that not a distraction in itself? I mean, this is – it's really sad. You know, he, he also said to me today that, you know, I asked him, do you think some of the schools in the conference – didn't want, um, you know, the, the, the Pac-12 to survive? Like, wh was there some sabotage going on internally? And he said no. He said the 10 schools were all on board. Certainly Colorado had some other ideas. 
with, when Coach Prime was hired, um, Deion Sanders wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to recruit Texas. He did not want to have to play Oregon and Washington and UCLA and USC. So I think Colorado was motivated from the beginning to kind of look elsewhere. But, you know, the commissioner telling me that, um, you know, he felt that the 10 schools still to this day were on board and engaged and, and just for whatever reason couldn't get it together. It's good to see he's uh, taking a lot of accountability for what happened. Um, John, yeah, I want right. to ask you, uh, Dane Lanning, he was on the pregame coverage here on ESPN. You were watching that, and he was giving a lot of insight onto the Washington side of the football. Uh, we had some fans call in and say, you know, didn't like that. Didn't like that Dane Lanning's on there talking about their rival after you've lost to them three different times. You would never catch Ryan Day being caught dead on this type of thing. Uh, what's your reaction to that, that Dane Lanning's on you know, the pregame show talking about Washington and uh, you know stuff like that rather than you know just kind of being behind the scenes on the field just watching the game? Well, well, answer this. Like, is it good for Dan Lanning? Is it good for Oregon's brand for him to be seen and him to establish himself, you know, while so many people are watching the national championship game or the run-up to the national championship game? Is it good for recruiting? Is it good for Oregon's brand? It's probably better for the brand and recruiting than sitting home and not being seen like everybody else. So, you know, I do think it's a calculated risk. You don't want to be – that guy who, uh, you know, is you don't want to be the bridesmaid every year. But, you know, Oregon came th- this season within six points of beating Washington twice. And and I think it gives Oregon an opportunity to say, hey, look, our only losses of the season came against this opponent by three points. He can certainly, he's qualified to talk about him, so I get why ESPN wants him on there. But I, I actually think it's good for Oregon's brand in a way, and I think it's good for Oregon to at least be, you know, you'd rather be in the game. But it's not bad for Dan Lanning to be seen and heard. I want to touch on the NFL real quick uh, with you uh, about your 49ers here. So, you know, playoffs are set. Uh, seems as if the 49ers going to have a somewhat easiest, uh, easier path going to, going forward to the Super Bowl. Uh, you still feeling confident about your Niners uh, with home field advantage getting to the Super Bowl pretty easily? Yeah, I just I don't know if there's anything easy ever about the NFL because, you know, you look at so much of the parity in the league and how games are won and lost. And I think it's difficult, you know, to kind of look at, you know, the landscape of the NFL and, and say that anything is easy, but the NFC is down. And, you know, there's a big gap, I think, between the Niners and the next team in the league and the next couple teams. And we went into the year thinking that the Eagles and the Niners and the Cowboys were all going to be right there and it was going to be great. But there's definitely a separation from San Francisco on. And I think some of that separation was probably born in the playoffs last year where, you know, the 49ers didn't have a quarterback, I think felt disrespected and, got knocked out in the NFC Championship game and had to watch the Super Bowl and probably thought that it should have been them and not the Eagles who were in the Super Bowl. So i got to give the Niners some credit. But don't, you know, nothing's easy. You're always one injury away. And, you know, the NFL is so dicey. In the playoffs, we have seen it time and again over the years. Teams that we all think are capable of winning a Super Bowl, it's an often trip. Uh, Buffalo comes to mind. Uh, Kansas City has had their moments. But it feels like it's teed up for the Niners to get there. And, you know, the Niners-Ravens game a couple weeks ago, it was uh, interesting to watch that game and kind of think of it as a precursor to the Super Bowl. Man, it's just so fascinating to talk 49ers, look on the TV, see see Jim Harbaugh back in a massive game where he coached a lot of massive games as a Niner head coach, including getting to a Super Bowl uh, where he, you know, faced against his brother. When you talk about the Ravens uh, about 10 years ago, that was the Super Bowl matchup. This game tonight, John, who has the coaching advantage? Jim Harbaugh, Kalen DeBoer. 
two really good coaches, great coordinators on both sides. I mean, I have a hard time seeing a distinct advantage anywhere because you give me the players on Michigan's sideline, and I'm picking Jim Harbaugh to be the coach of that team because that's his style of football. But you give me a great passer like Michael Penix Jr., and you give me three receivers and a tight end who can all play in the NFL, who all will play in the NFL on the Washington side, and, and I'm picking Kalen DeBoer, and, and I'm picking Ryan Grubb to call the plays. And, and so I have a hard time saying that there's an advantage in this game one side or the other. I just think what we're going to see is we're going to see Michigan try to come out like those Jim Harbaugh teams of the Stanford era did, and I think they're, they're going to try to smash it, and they're going to try to control the line of scrimmage, and they're going to try to keep Michael Penix sitting on the Washington sideline. And when Penix gets into the game, Kalen DeBoer is going to have to get sevens. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, and, and, and watch the coaching philosophy here. You want to talk coaching. You know, Jim Harbaugh gets in a fourth down early in the game at midfield. Is he going for it? Does he learn from the Dan Lanning mistake? Hmm. Is he uh, is he kick, taking field goals? You know, because I do think this is the kind of game where, you, you know, you've got to know what's right for your team. And you have to know that, you know, you look at what Dan Landing did early in the year, and I think Oregon, Oregon let one get away. Is there a sense walking around the stadium and talking to people that this is going to be Jim Harbaugh's last game as the Michigan coach, no matter win or lose? I think, I think, I think there is. And, 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 and to, it's mostly in talking to Michigan media and Michigan fans that are long-term fans. They kind of, the conference is changing. His job's not getting any easier. He's been sniffing around a championship. Certainly if he wins one, I think, you know, there's maybe maybe he's done all he can do in college football and he goes back to the NFL. But I also think, you know, his his job's changing and the conference is getting harder and the playoffs expanding. And, you know, I won't be surprised if he ends up in the NFL, maybe with the Chargers or someone like that. But, you know, I think there's a greater chance that Harbaugh's gone than, than you know, clearly Kalen DeBoer on the other sideline. You know, people forget DeBoer's daughter. Is a softball commit. She'll be a freshman at Washington next year. I think Kalen DeBoer is going to stick around at Washington two or three more years at least. So I wanted to ask you about his trajectory. Steven kind of floated it out there at hour one. Could this be the start of a legendary coaching career with Kalen DeBoer? And I know it's, you know, that's a bigger topic than it is for the moment, but legend's got to start somewhere, John. And this guy has just kept winning everywhere he's been, literally. He hasn't lost at Washington and over, you know, what, 15 calendar months on the calendar? Like, he keeps on winning. Is he just going to be an outlier? Is he just one of those guys that, you know, he's destined for greatness in the Washington program, even with the Big Ten migration, even with Michael Penix leaving, has a sustainable thing going under him and Ryan Grubb? Yeah, I, I, you look at his career. His, you know, the greatest predictor of future performance is past performance. He won everywhere. You know, he won before Fresno State. He won at Fresno State. He's won in places that, uh, you know, people right before him didn't have success. You look at Fresno State and Washington. He inherited two programs that had been under 500 and then, you know, turned them right around. And clearly at Washington, he took over a Jimmy Lake team that went four and eight and, you know, and is on, you know set up the run for this season. So, I think he's a really good coach, and you look out onto the field. You know, George Klyovkov brought this up in the pregame as I stood with him. He said, you know, Washington doesn't have a five-star. There's not a five-star player on their roster. And, you, you know, it's, it's really good four-stars, some three-stars, and you got a quarterback in Michael Penix who is just lights out. It just feels like a, 
a blink of an eye ago, I was watching Jimmy Lake shove a player in the face on the sideline of a Ducks Huskies game. Like that wasn't that all that long ago. What what pivotal did, moment, isn't that right? Amazing, For, you know. It, yeah, it, you could think you could you know you know you got a movie called Sliding Doors back in the day. You know, you think about sliding doors. Jimmy Lake doesn't shove that kid on the sideline. Are we here? <laughs> Is Washington here? You know, like yeah. it's it, you you know Penix transfers. You know, there's great recruiting. It's a great hire by Jen Cohen, the former AD, to 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 hire Kalen DeBoer when everyone else was going splashy. Lincoln Riley, Dan Lanning. She went with a substance hire that was sneaky good. But are we here if Jimmy Lake doesn't shove that player on the sideline in the Oregon game? It's fascinating. My, my last thing for you here, and we'll talk to you again uh, after five, but what, what do you think is a better outcome for college football, Washington winning this game or Michigan winning this game? The brand of Michigan for college football is going to be – it's a bigger brand win. It's a better story, I think, if Washington wins it. But it, it, I think college football and the ratings and ESPN, uh, you know, I think I could you could feel those entities all week long pulling for the brand name to get the win. Washington's a bigger brand, let's face it. And then I mean, Michigan. Sorry, Michigan's yeah, a bigger brand. Yeah, Michigan's a bigger brand. I know you're picking Washington uh, to win this yeah. game. Give us our, our final prediction from John Canzano. The, the type of game this is going to be and, and how Washington comes out on top? I think, you know, Michael Penix and Washington have the ball, two, two and a half minutes to go in the game. They're down by three. Penix has the ball. Washington's not worried. They've been there all year. I think, I think Washington wins this game. I think it's something like 30 to 27, 30 to 28. Uh, it's a come from behind win for, for the Huskies. Appreciate you, John. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we'll check in with you again at the top of the 5 o'clock hour as the game gets underway. And uh, appreciate the coverage from Houston. Of course. Thanks, guys. He's on Twitter, at John Cazano BFT. He'll check in with us again in about 45 minutes or so. I'll take a couple of phone calls as well. Uh, Dan's been holding in West Lynn. Uh, Dan, what do you think about this game? Um, I, I think it, uh, I've got two words family ties. I think we all have situations where we may have an aunt or an uncle who we're related to and they went to Oregon, Washington, Washington State, Oregon State. Um, I actually have a good story about the Heward family, the boys out of Puyallup. So my dad's from Puyallup. He actually played for um, DeAndros at Oregon State. But growing up in Puyallup, the Heward family, that was a big, I know you guys know the Hewards. I don't know if a lot of the viewers do, but when the Hewards would take their visits to different colleges, my dad would have them come stay with us um, in Oregon State, since they, uh, uh, in Corvallis, since they were family friends. And I have a picture, um, we have a picture on our fridge that we put up this week um, of the Heward boys. They stayed at our house, and their legs are hanging off the bunk bed. Um, and I just think about them. I think about that family. I think about... Um, everyone else in, in our family that's connected to, to all these different schools. And I just think it all goes back to family ties. We all have um, a story like the Heward story uh, that we can share. And that's why I'm rooting for the dogs. Um, that's all I have. Yeah, it's a great point, And I love the, the anecdotes. I, uh, I like to listen to, to Brock up there in Seattle from time to time as well for his uh, Seahawks takes. And uh, he's posting on social media. He's living living the moment like he's living his best life he's in houston right now with a bunch of other former husky quarterbacks damon's down there we can always you know love damon for the kenny wheaton moment right you know hey well there's a place in the 
in the keyword household, even for Duck fans, because uh, Kenny Wheaton's going to score. Uh, came courtesy him. Uh, Kevin is in Eugene online too. Hey, Kevin, what do you think is going to happen tonight? Well, I'm uh, I'm hoping that Washington wins. Uh, John stole a lot of my fire about Oregon fans. I grew up in Southern California. I'm 75 years old. I've been a Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12 guy my whole life. And uh, any team, if, you know, a dozen years ago or so, the, the Ducks were in uh, the Seattle Bowl, the now defunct Seattle Bowl. And they played Wake Forest and got their butts handed to them by a golf school. And yet there were Washington fans sitting there. My cousin was with me. He's a UCLA fan. And we were rooting for the Pac-10 because, you know, uh, a high tide raises all boats. So I'm hoping Washington pulls it off. Washington pulls it off. The Ducks are arguably as good as Michigan. Yeah, that's – yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, Stephen, how good do you think Oregon is? Are they a top-four team in the country? Now that we've seen a couple of these semifinals, we saw how good Washington was. The team they lost to twice by a combined six points is playing for it all. How, how good is Oregon? If you just had to power rank these well, these teams, I mean, good, I would say a, this. Let it's me, a great question. Let me say the Bo Nix Oregon Ducks of 2023. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. It's a great question because we go back to that Pac-12 title game, and Oregon was almost a double-digit favorite over Washington. And I know I, that smells but, 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 so but, but, bad. But Judah, there's been two games since then. How? I mean, is there really that much difference? I know that Oregon. It would be nine and a half. I still think Oregon. If you're going by Vegas. That, Oregon's probably favored by a slight total. Oregon's probably favored over Washington on a neutral site. And I, I know it's. What sounds, do you think the line is on this game? Michigan versus Oregon, neutral site. I think it's Michigan by two and a half or three. I, I would say three and a half, probably. And I think Oregon's probably two and a half to Washington now. And in that case, I would bet the Ducks. Like I just think, I think Oregon is one of those teams. I think Georgia would be a top four team. I'm not sure Alabama would have been. Georgia's a high, would be higher ranked than Alabama, even though Alabama beat them. Why did Georgia go and lose to Bama like that? And they didn't, you know, Bama controlled them. I don't understand but this. That, I don't understand Georgia. Like they were supposed to. Like everybody's saying, oh, and then you see Sankey saying, oh, we definitely had two of the best four. Did you? Did you? Are we just going to say Georgia is undoubtedly a best four team? Because guess what? If you were, you wouldn't have lost the damn game to Bama. You could have saved us so much headache and trouble if you just win the damn game. They didn't. Neutral site, whatever. It's in your backyard. You let them control you in the biggest game of the year. Why don't you come out swinging and beat those guys if you were so freaking good? I'm tired of hearing how good Georgia was. You don't think automatically, top four automatically top four team. If they were... Why did they show up that way against Bama, right? That's my thing. And we're fading Bama. You and I, are, we're saying Bama, look at their offensive line. They're in tatters. Michigan did whatever they wanted to them on a neutral site. Oh, but, oh my God. Georgia is certainly a top four team, even though they lost to that team. What's your top four I then, Judah? I don't get I, I That's what I'm saying. I think I kind of put Oregon in there, honestly. I know it sounds crazy, but if this Washington team is playing for it all, they beat Texas, and I know there was a little bit, you know, turnovers played a role in there. I think Washington and Oregon, just from a talent standpoint in 2023, they're both top four I, in the country. I agree. I think it's Michigan, Oregon, Washington, and Georgia. Like, I think those are the top four teams in the nation uh, from power rating-wise. Not Texas. Not Texas. No. I don't, see, I don't know. I, I see Texas, Georgia. 
I would like to see that game. It's just yeah, I would I would not, love to not see not Florida that. State. No, I'm just no. kidding. Uh, healthy Florida State. I mean Jordan Travis. I probably wouldn't put uh, him healthy there Jordan Travis. I think they're definitely in. They yeah. honestly they would have been. I mean who are we kidding? And they would have been in if Jordan Travis didn't right. get hurt. But that's I mean that's the that's the difference between point spreads and like actually like power ratings and stuff. Like I think right. Oregon would be still be favored. Well, but... don't tell that to Nick Saban because he thinks power ratings should be the point spread. He's like, hey, we'd be favored in Vegas against yeah. anybody. We put should it be in. We should be champions right yeah. now, national champions. But yeah, I, it, that's an interesting question because it, it's crazy how things went ha- and happened. Oregon was right there, right? They played a terrible first half against Washington, and then you, like you said, end of the first half, score a touchdown, come out the start of the second half, score again. You're up in the game, and it was that close to saying, okay, yeah, this point spread was right. This nine and a half yeah. point spread looks like Oregon could cover this spread, and we were right all along. So you're right. Like Oregon may be a top four team. It just was unfortunate that they lost to Washington in this game because I think right now they would match up well with Michigan. They would match up well with Texas. They would have matched up well with Alabama. Yeah. I think this is, it was a weird matchup against Washington where Lanning just has not gotten over the hump against DeBoer and Washington. Well, it's a bad matchup because your secondary is depleted and you have the best passing attack in college football on the other side. That's why it was, was a bad matchup And Oregon's pass rush. Wasn't as good as it needed to be uh, against Washington in both of those games. Even though Mike gets it out super quick. Uh, 503-417-7575. We'll bounce a break and come back and take more of your calls. Who are you picking tonight? Do you think the Ducks are a top four team in the country? Just on talent. Obviously, it doesn't mean anything this year. But from what we've seen of Washington now and the the semifinals and some of the bowl matchups, what do you think? Duck fan, do you think Dan Lanning's uh, crew from Eugene was among the four best teams in college football? 503-417-7575. 503-417-7575. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano. John has joined us twice from Houston already. He'll do it again in the 5 o'clock hour as this one gets underway from Houston, Washington, Michigan for the national championship. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Last chance to get in with your prediction for tonight. Washington and Michigan. Talk to John Canzano. He's got about 30-27 Huskies coming out on top. What's your score, Steven? Uh, Give me 31-24 Michigan. I'll go 33-27 Michigan in this one. 503-417-7575 gets your call in here. Uh, Jake is in Eugene. He wants to chime in. Hey, Jake. Hey, how you guys doing? Great show. Love it. Uh, I wanted to chime in on you asked whether Oregon, we thought Oregon was a top four team. Did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm posing that just because you lost by a combined six points to the dogs and they're playing for the national title. We saw what uh, a couple of those other teams around the top four have looked like. I don't know. Are you a Duck fan? And if so, like, do you think the Ducks were a top four team this year in terms of talent? Huge Duck fan, and yes, they were until they lost to Washington the first time and then again the second time. So are they now? Absolutely not. I don't know how you could say that. Maybe talent-wise, but, like, you know, just compared to the five and the four stars and all that stuff to the two teams. But, no, they're not a top four team. But what drives me crazy is when people are like, you know, if Washington wins, it'll make Oregon look better because we lost twice to the best team in the country. I just cannot get on board with that, like, at all. Like, 
Yeah, you know, it would be cool to see the the last season of the Pac-12 to, you know, get the national title. That that would be pretty cool. But Washington, though, like there's not two teams. Actually, my most hated team is Ohio State. They've crushed my dreams more than any other team. But Michigan and Washington, I'm going to watch the game just because I'm, you know, a, a football fiend. But, I mean, I, I can't really root for anybody. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Man, I, if I'm a duck diehard, and I, I'm not, but – I've talked to so many of them. That's exactly where I'm at. I don't know that there's really a good scenario in any of this. I mean, Michigan winning is fine to me, I guess. I don't. How can you be all right with Washington winning? It's the it's combination. Like, why do you play the game? You play to win a national championship. It's the combo. Michigan is very unlikable, I, and I get that as a guy who I think I think I like Jim Harbaugh. I think he's funny. I think he's a great coach. They're very unlikable. And so I think that goes into it. They're like, okay, I don't want to root for Michigan either, so I might as well root for the Pac-12 since it's going away. But my thought is this. If you're rooting because it's going to be good for the Pac-12, those feelings are going to go away after about two years because you're going to be in the Big Ten. You're going to be focused on the Big Ten opponents. They're going to go away after about two minutes. Maybe even two minutes. (laughs) And then at that point, you have to listen to your rivals say that they have a national championship and you don't again. It's going to suck, man. In 2023-24, Washington won a title. You don't. That's all they'll be saying. They don't care unless about... you win one. But yeah, until, unless until you, you win, win one, back. until you win one, until because, you win one, because they won't be saying, "Hey, it was for the Pac-12." They'll be saying, "No, we have one. You don't." So, like the narrative of like do it for the Pac-12 sounds great. Sounds great today. Probably won't sound great tomorrow because or next season when you're thinking about the Big Ten and how you have to take on Indiana. Like that's what you're worried about. You're not worried about the Pac-12 of the, the next season. So, like I get it. Like you want to root for the West Coast, the Northwest, but man. It's your rivals, man. Yeah. I, I could never do that. This is Dan Landing talking about the Huskies and how they can match the physicality of Michigan uh, in the trenches in this one. Landing is a guest uh, analyst with ESPN today in Houston. These are two really physical teams, you know, on both sides of the ball. So I think that'll show up. Yeah, because that's a big question is what everybody's bringing up. Is like, can Washington handle the physicality? You think yes. Yeah, I think so. They, they've, they've proven to run the ball better in the second half of the season. Um, they've got they've got guys up front that can move it, and then they anchor really well on their defensive line when it comes to the run game. What, what, what's going to be interesting is the 12 personnel, three tight ends. Yes, yeah. They're going to be playing some big boy ball for Michigan. That, right. That's going to be different. 12 personnel, that's, that's two tight ends, 13 personnel, three tight ends. When they go heavy, that's when the big boys come out. Well, that, I think that's the big question because we Not all to be assume... creepy or anything. <laughs> yeah, you know. uh, I, I like creepy Judah, but yeah, uh, you're uh, the, uh, that's the question, right? Like we think Harbaugh is going to go old school Jim Harbaugh, run the football, Harbaugh. get get the big guys out there. Stanford Harbaugh can Washington stop that, right? Like phone booth, the phone booth. Yeah, can they stop the big old the big old boys in the middle? That's the one question Washington has. Atlanta seems like they seems like they can, but they haven't had to face that this I, season. I don't know that they'll do that down in, down out, only because Washington is gettable through the air too, right? Right. Like that's kind of the sneaky thing. It's almost like Michigan's got too many good choices on offense. So the trick for them is taking care of the football and staying balanced. Um, but as long as they're converting first downs, short yardage advantage of Michigan, you would think in this game, right? They should be able to do whatever they want on third and fourth and short. Uh, and as long as they do that and don't have any self-inflicted wounds, false starts like Texas, fumbles like Texas, Texas wins that game without procedure penalties and fumbles, like honestly. Um, and that's with Penix thrown for 430. Uh, so I don't know. I think Michigan wins this, this game, but I think it's going to be really close. Landing also talked about 
Michigan secondary against the Washington receivers. Do they have enough? Isn't that what you need? You need enough, right? Because three strong, not just like three guys. You got like three All-Americans pretty much running rounds. So you need depth at secondary? Do you think Michigan has that, or is that uh, something that maybe is exposed here late in the game? You know, the experience of Michigan, I think, really shows up in this game. These guys have been playing together for a really long time. I do think they have that talent. It's a matter of if they can sustain throughout the game. And the amount of communication required, every shift, every motion, every stack is going to make it hard for those guys to go out there and play. Yep. J.J. McCarthy, 26-1 as a starter, as a Michigan quarterback. Uh, you know, he's not a terrific QB, not a terrific pro prospect, but he can be in the annals of college football. Um, we're going to talk some NFL here in the next few minutes after the game kicks off. Uh, John Catano, though, will join us again at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. But I am curious, you know, on, on this front, the last thing with Washington offensively for me, do they give you 2019 LSU vibes? Obviously, LSU is historic offensively. Best offense we've ever seen. So Washington's not quite that. But if you give me outstanding college quarterback, arguably the best QB in the country this year, and three dynamite receivers, does that not sound like what LSU stirred to get itself 15-0 national championship? Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, Terrace Marshall. Michael Penix, Roma Dunze, Jalen McMillan, Jalen Polk. I mean, it's probably a Diet Coke version of LSU, but it's just that template that I can see. Everyone wants to talk defense, trenches, you know, Big Ten, big boy football. That's how you win a national championship. I'm like, well, hold on. We have seen an instance where an offense was just so good that it carried the team all the way to the national championship. Now, LSU did it with dominance. Washington has not been dominant, but they have been so consistent. And now they just need one more game of consistency to win it all, Steven. That's crazy. What do you think about that? It's imperfect, but that's what comes to mind. I mean, yes and no, because I do think that the defense was elite as well. Like, it wasn't just the offense. LSU had defensive dudes that are in the NFL as well. Right? Like they- I don't really, yeah. Ojalari. They've added Ojalari pretty much every year. Was uh, Devin White in the league yet? At Derek that point, Stingley. Stingley obviously was I, a I just, number I, three pick. I think he was a freshman that year. He was nineteen. I just think that it's a little different, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? I yeah. think it's a it's a lesser version of that because also I feel like there's still questions of like the next level, right? Like Joe Burrow, that season, the whole season, like okay, yeah, this guy's gonna be the number one over pick. Penix is like. Is he going to be a first-round pick? Well, now he's moving right. up, and I think people realize, yeah, he's going to be awesome. Rome, Rome's going to be awesome in the NFL, just like Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson is, but I, I think it's a little different. I like your comparison, though. I but, just like the idea of, like, have we seen this template before? We have. We have seen Outlier it. Outlier offense, offense that just is, it's their year. I think it's different. Like, in the NFL, you need a good, you need at least an average, like an above-average defense to win the whole thing, right? Like, you can't just get by with no defense. I think in college football, Sometimes your offense can be that elite, and you can win. And so I think that's what Washington's kind of go for. And they got one game to do it. They like, have one game to do it. Four quarters to do it and uh, beat Did Michigan. you say four quarters? Get, get, get the Pac-12 <laughs> a uh, national title. Man, huh? Pac-12 going out with a bang. This is this is going to be something. It's, it's almost like a New Year's Eve going into a new year, and we're going to figure out if the Pac-12's got a runner-up or a national champion in its last season of modern football. I've got 33-27 Michigan. You've got 31-20? 31-24. 31-24, Michigan? Yes. 
Gonzano's uh, going 30 to 27, Washington. And you can follow him on uh, Twitter at John Gonzano BFT. Same on Instagram as well. And he'll check in with us in the five o'clock hour, too. Uh, we'll go to break. We'll come back as this game is starting to kick off. We're going to shift our focus, talk some NFL. Haven't talked NFL yet, and there's so many good storylines, and plus the playoff pictures coming up. But first, a little Seahawk postmortem with my guy, Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazano right here on The Bald Face Truth. Back to The Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back to the show. John Cazano will join us again from Houston at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Michigan, Washington about to kick off shortly. As it does, we'll pivot to some NFL conversation with our friend Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic. He is joining us uh, on the line right now. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn in for Canzano. First things first, though, Michael Sean, uh, as a Coug product yourself, uh, where, where do you fall on this one tonight with Washington taking on Michigan? Uh, yeah, I think I'm pretty unique from my other uh, Coug alumni in that when the Huskies play and they're not playing us, I usually just don't care, you know, to be <laughs> honest. I don't. If they win, cool. If they lose, cool. You know, I'm usually aware of when they play and all that because I live in Seattle. But other than that, I'm not usually, like, rooting for the other team, you know, like, oh, the Huskies are playing Illinois. Let me, oh, yeah, let's go Illinois. No, I don't care. Um, My thing, usually as an objective college football observer is these games are forever, right? This game is about to kick off, and it's going to be about four hours. So if you're going to hold me for four hours, this better be some good ball. That's usually my only requirement. (laughs) <laughs> so does that apply to Seahawks games as well, or is that when the professional obligation kicks in? Because four hours of Seahawks football, the team that you cover, you never know what you're going to get from time to time. Uh, in the desert yesterday, it was a little bit of everything, and somehow a Seahawk win, Michael Sean. But at the end of the day, not a playoff berth. You know, where do you start w- with the Seahawks' 2023 season that finishes nine and eight, same record as last year, but not the same result? Yeah, you know, one of the things I like, I'm a stat nerd, but this nerd, this stat is not super nerdy, is point differential. I think it's really important. Um, I think you can measure things beyond just your wins and loss uh, record, right? So, for instance, the Seahawks last year when they were 9-8, and eight, I think they were like plus 6, anywhere from plus 6 to plus 12, right? So that means they outscored their opponents uh, on the season, right? This year, you know what they are? Minus 38. That means despite winning more games than they lost, and they were actually outscored on the on the season by a significant margin, right? They're right around where like the Falcons were, um, for instance, and like the Steelers and some other teams. Um, whereas I, I bring that up to say historical context time now. The only only other team that Pete Carroll's had as coach of the Seahawks that had a negative point differential was his first team, that 2010 squad was like a minus 97 or something. They were like legit bad, like so. By that metric, by scoring more points than your opponent, this is like the second worst team Pete Carroll's had. Um, now, that's just an oversimplification, but I do start there when looking at the fact that the name of the game is to score more than the other team, and this Seahawks team was about as bad at it as any Pete Carroll team that he's ever had. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, I the Niners are all, are really good. You play them twice. It sounds like excuse-making, and they didn't even get, like, you know, 
curb stomped by like five touchdowns. I mean, it was three touchdowns against the Niners, but it was a lot of close wins and it was a lot of decisive losses. I think that is is also what makes sense when you bring up your point differential, um, you know, your perspective. When you hear Pete in the post game presser, when you when you talk to him, uh, you hear him on on Seattle radio. You know, are you uh, what, what strikes you about his kind of comments, I guess, and his attitude? Um, of course, headlined by the fact that he wants to come back again and, and run it all back in 2024. Yeah, you know, he, he sounds usually optimistic, you know, his typical optimistic self, which which is fine. I feel like he has to sell that. However, you know, because, I mean, his job as the face of the franchise is he can't just be all doom and gloom up there, right? Like, he's trying to sell tickets, trying to get fans hope and, and optimistic, you know, so you gotta you got to be careful when you're the, the front man in that way. I think he understands that. I think when he goes behind the scenes and looks at some of this tape and looks at some of these numbers and reassesses his uh, coaching staff, he's going to have to make some really hard decisions here. Because uh, although Pete said, you know, Monday morning that – he feels that they're closer to being a Super Bowl team than they were at this point last year. That is false in about every way. Uh, it, it just really is. They're not closer at all. Um, they changed some players around on defense, and they got worse. They got more expensive, they got more talented, and they got worse on defense, just specifically on that side of the ball. That's terrible. That usually gets people fired. Uh, and who's to say it won't? And some people could have their jobs lost because of that. On offense, they're not better. Right? Their quarterback played okay. Their O-line was okay. The receivers were okay. They have good raw numbers, but the receivers were just okay. They didn't run the ball as much as they liked to. They sucked on third down. They sucked in the red zone. Um, that's no closer than last year. Right? That's, those are two bad things right? as offense and defense. If you can't you can't function well on offense on third down or in the red zone and on defense, you can't stop anybody, right? particularly stopping them from running the ball. Yeah, so I think Pete's in for some really, really, really hard soul searching here. I mean, he's not, it's not going to be breaking news when he sits down. And looked at it because he was in the, the thick of it all year. But this team is in a really bad spot because it's not like they have a bunch of money and draft picks, you know, to fix this. And they don't have an MO of, like, swiping everything to a credit card so you can keep a, a certain nucleus intact and deal with it down the road, kind of how the Saints have done. We've seen the Rams do that. The Chargers were kind of doing that. The Seahawks don't operate that way. Their ownership doesn't allow. So if you're not going to do that, there's not really a direct path to catching up to someone like the 49ers, uh, you know, or even the – the Lions or even the Cowboys in your own conference. Talking to Michael Sean Dugar covers the Seahawks for the Athletic. Man, the defensive point I think is the most important one. I know the quarterback position in the offense naturally uh, conjures conversation, but I, you know, the defense is where it really stops and finishes to me as far as like the most critical, you know, things that need to be addressed and or fixed. But Michael Sean, he's in a weird spot. I mean. He he had a, a scheme change of sorts, or at least a scheme adaptation to a little bit more of a modern philosophy. Uh, went to Clint Hurt, obviously away from Ken Norton Jr. Brought in Sean Desai for that one year. Uh, brought in Carl Scott, who you know I like Carl Scott, you know coaching the the corners, but guys like Reek Woolen weren't exactly as good as they were last year. Um, you know where do you come out on what changes? in terms of philosophy, can be made on the defensive side of the ball, does it inevitably have to be a change at coordinator um, or at least some changes on that defensive staff? Yeah, I think if you bring back Pete, you say, Pete, you got to change. you got to make some changes on defense. 
And and then if he's like, all right, cool, I want I I can do that, but I want to keep Clarence. And you say, okay, Pete, that's fine. He needs to get rid of everybody else, because it just the the regression on the part of promising players really stood out this year. Or not even the in some cases it wasn't regression. I just didn't see guys take any leaps outside of Boye Mafe. It felt like a lot of guys were just as good as they were last year or worse, or just as worse than they were in previous years. And to me, that reflects coaching, right? You know, I, I don't think Reek Willen forgot how to play cover three, right, or forgot how to tackle, um, you know, or, or, or all those guys. I don't think any of them forgot how to tackle or forgot how to do basic, you know, deep third stuff in cover three or handle over routes in cover three. Like, this is all just they – were, they were bad at stuff that you would imagine would be like day one, day two installs and OTAs or, you know, mandatory minicamp or even the first week of training camp. And to me, that just feels like the coaching wasn't there. You know, they had a lot of talent on this defense. I think I counted earlier in the year, and this was before Spoon and Julian Love made the Pro Bowl. Before that, I think they had like six guys on defense who had made a Pro Bowl before, uh, and now that's eight players. Now that Devin Witherspoon and Julian Love made it. That's eight guys, man. That is – that. There's no way you should have the worst defense. If you don't have the best defense, that's cool. If you don't have the top five defense, that's fine too. Guys get hurt. But you have legitimately one of the worst defenses with, and I got like eight guys, seven or eight guys who at one point were Pro Bowl players and in some cases like currently are Pro Bowl players. They're Pro Bowl and everything, but man, like that's one way to measure how the talent didn't match, uh, you know, the on-field production. And I, when I think of that, you know, I really think of, like, the guys who were in their ear, the guys who were in charge of making sure they were good on their technique, the fundamentals being consistent, not committing penalties, having good eye discipline in the run game, pass game, play action, all this stuff. You know, I, I would really get new voices in there um, if, if I was Pete because it just doesn't feel like the ones that are in there now are getting the best out of the players. So you say if, if Pete comes back, you know, and there's a lot of talk down here in Blazer land about Blazers ownership and, and Jody Allen and the Allen Trust and all that. And, how you know, down here we don't really, really believe she's got the teeth to make any type of big-time change or big-time swings. Um, so in a version of Pete Carroll's future with Seattle, you know, he says he wants to come back and all that. So, okay, we assume he doesn't resign, but... Do you think there's a realistic world in which the Pete Carroll era ends and it's not of his own volition? Or what kind of pathway does that does that look like? Yeah, I think they would have to bottom out, honestly. You know, I think guys like Mike Tomlin, guys like John Harbaugh, uh, guys like Pete Carroll, even Bill Belichick before this year had done a pretty good job. You know, Sean Payton was relatively good at this, too. It's like, all right, you may not be a contender every year, but you don't suck. Right, like you ain't just naturally picking in the top five or something like that. Like we're competitive, you know. Our week sixteen games matter. I feel like if you can stay in that realm and you've already won a Super Bowl, you've just bought up so much goodwill that you you have the benefit of the doubt when it's time to like have your yearly review. Which is why I think someone like Bill Belichick is in trouble because <laughs> he did bottom out. They have like the third pick or something like that. Like they stick, yeah. and you lose the benefit of the doubt when you get that bad. Pete is not that bad. He's like I said, he's in the Tomlin Harbaugh uh, kind of realm where you could go anywhere from seven wins to thirteen, right? Like you, you're in that range, and you're more likely to just land like right in the middle. You're gonna be feisty. Your home finale is gonna be sold out because it'll probably have playoff implications. And if you're an owner, that's what you want. Owners hate being like being the Thursday night football game in week thirteen. Ain't nobody there. Because right? you're already eliminated, you're looking forward to taking the next kid in the draft at quarterback. That's the worst. You just don't get to that point with Pete Carroll teams or Tomlin teams or John Harbaugh teams, really. You get to the point where, like, hey, hey week 18, 
here's our playoff scenarios. Week 17, here's our playoff scenarios. And when you're, when you're always in that spot, it, it really is easy for ownership to be like, oh, okay, you fix a few things here and there, we'll get back to where you've taken us before. You know, so I, I don't know if that's the total uh, equivalent to what's going on with the Blazers. At least they seem to have bottomed out recently. Um, but before the bottoming out recently, it feels like the Blazers, yeah, were in a similar spot. Yeah, yeah, they bottomed out and brought on a new coach at the same time. So it was like kind of like okay to be bad because everybody was on the same page about being bad. But got to love the NBA. Um, I'll get you out on this. And the Tomlin stuff's fascinating. Only, you know, recency. He brought in his own squad and whatever, you know, magic they got cooked up in Pittsburgh. It's still working for them. Just ripped the soul out of the Seahawks defense and trotted their way to the AFC playoffs. Uh, Tomlin did it again. They picked Pickett at quarterback at number 20 overall. Um, you know, I'm up against the clock, of course, Michael Sean, but what what is your sense of the quarterback position? Seattle's going to be picking around 17, 18, something like that. Is there a version of this where you might take a swing on a guy there? What's your quick thought on that? Uh, they're they're going to pick 16th in this draft, and I – when, every time I feel like Gino has a bad game, like when I leave the press box to drive home, I'm like, oh, man, Gino didn't play that well today. You know, I get Monday morning or Tuesday morning, I get the All-22 film, I watch it, and I'm like, oh, man, I was tripping. This throw looks fine. This guy ran the wrong route. This guy ran the route at a bad depth. His right guard got smoked on this play. Like, I can see it so much clearer, um, which is why players implore us to watch the tape. I see why. <laughs> when you watch yeah. it, the eye in the sky truly does not lie. So and, I, and Pete Carroll then explains why every time – think about this. How often did you hear Pete Carroll when Russ was the quarterback be like, yeah, no, Russ is, Russ is playing fine. We just need everyone else around him to be better. You know, he never really said that that often. With Gino, he says it every other week. You know, he's letting us know what he thinks. Gino's playing fine. It's the other guys around him that are not good enough to get us where we want to be. And then when I watch the film, that sounds right. That hey. sounds right. O-line's not good. Coaching's not good. Guys are running routes to – the wrong route or the route at the wrong depth, and the defense can't stop the run. Like I feel like if you just make a list of all the Seahawks' problems right now, you get. Oh, there he goes. Yeah, up against the clock. Sorry, Michael Sean. Appreciate your time. We'll bounce the break and come back with John Cazano from Houston after this. B F F T. Now. Built by high-caliber millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn with the ball-faced truth. Final hour, John Canzano will be calling in from Houston with Washington, Michigan underway. Washington just picked up a big-time third down to keep their first drive alive. They're down 7-0 to the Wolverines. We'll get more from Canzano coming up we'll also have punch and audio get some uh, nfl thoughts from myself and steven we just talked to michael sean dugar of the athletic about the uh, the seahawks and the end of their season and the future for pete carroll the future at the quarterback position find the podcast if you missed any part of that conversation always uh you know a tough realization when the seahawks season is over but one that this seahawk fan Needs to make from time to time. Back-to-back nine and eight records, but unlike last year, not going to the playoffs this year. So more NFL conversation coming up, but let's go back out to Houston, Texas, NRG Stadium. John Cazano is there. John, how's it going uh, covering this one so far? It looks like Big Blue is up early. Big Blue up early. Uh, You know, Michigan did what Michigan, what everyone expected Michigan to do. They came out, they were very physical on that opening drive. Uh, Really, I thought... 
knocked Washington off the line of scrimmage. I think there was one negative play, but everything else was positive yards for Michigan. But, you know, Washington has the ball now on their first drive, and, you know, they were going right down the field just like we expected them to do with Michael Penix. So I think, you know, this is going to be a game that's going to be played in the high 20s, low 30s. I think both teams, it's going to be a close game. I think it's going to feel a lot like an NFL game, oddly. Hmm. As much as we want to see college football be different than the pros, I think we're, you know, that's what we're seeing. What's, uh, what's the energy the fan base is? Like, what percentage did you put at Michigan and Washington split home crowd, or split crowds? I, it feels to me like there's just a few more Washington fans. I don't think it's like a huge disparity, but I, you know, I, I would say it's like 55% Washington fans. Mm. The Michigan fans are still loud. You can, you could hear them on the opening drive, but I think that, you know, it's about 55% Washington. Good atmosphere inside the stadium. Feels like a big game. You know, Jen Cohen, the athletic director at USC, is in the house. Dan Landing has stuck around for the game. I'm told he's somewhere in the building. I may go try to track him down, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, I obviously it feels like a big time event. Do you think Oregon and this is a, you know, it's a tough question to ask, but do you think Oregon was a top four team this year, considering Washington's here and they, you know, two losses combined six points? I think you make that argument. I mean, if you put Oregon in the Big 12 conference, are they the conference champion in the Big 12? You know, or do do they go undefeated in that conference? Do you, you know, are they Texas essentially? Um, you know, I think that you can certainly make the case for that, that, you know, Oregon played Washington twice within three points both times. Washington was better. I don't think there's a doubt. I don't think anybody's walking around thinking Oregon deserves to be in in front of Washington. But, you know, I think Oregon played Washington tougher than Texas did, and we're going to find out with Michigan tonight. Do you think if it was a 12-team playoff, you think Oregon has a legitimate chance to run the table and win a national championship? Because we're going to see that next I, season. Yeah, because... I think it's hard to say no because they were so close against Washington and, and it's a quarterback centric game and they had Bo Nix, a guy who just didn't make mistakes. And, you know, I was talking about it with Jerry Brewer, the Washington post columnist today. I was on the shuttle on the way over to the stadium and, you know, he was asking me about Nick's and we both kind of agree that we think Nix is going to have a nice pro career. He's not a guy that makes mistakes. Maybe he's right for somebody like the Denver Broncos and Sean Payton. But, you know, he's got a lot of starts under his belt. It reminds me a little bit of Brock Purdy in that way. Brock Purdy, I think, had 48 starts in college at Iowa State, and that's why when he was put into the starting role with the Niners, it wasn't like throwing a guy who had started 15 games in there. You know, Bo Nix has 61 college starts. And so I think, you know, you put Oregon into a uh, playoff scenario, who knows what's going to happen. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Oregon in this game or deep into the playoff next year. And the Big Ten didn't just didn't look that great to me this this season, guys. Do you think the QB drop off? Will there be a QB drop off between Knicks and Dylan Gabriel? I think there will be, because I think Bo Nix just didn't make mistakes. You know, it's hard for me to say that a guy coming in is going to be any better than that, but it's evident that what Oregon's trying to do. I mean, Oregon is evidently trying to make sure that they have a transfer portal quarterback who's got some experience and then they're going to backfill with super talented, you know, wide receivers and running backs and, you know, go find the best defensive players that they can find. So the, you know, their, their formula is evident right now. They're not developing a quarterback. What's your thoughts? Uh, Heather Dittish, Pete Thamel reporting 
earlier today that the college football playoff ESPN, they're in the midst of negotiations uh, to maintain the network as the sole rights holder for the next six seasons after their two-year contract is up. So uh, eight more seasons, approximately $1.3 billion for the new six-year deal. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think it's good for the game of college football to have ESPN be the sole sole rights owner of the college football playoff going forward? No, no way. No. And keep in mind, I mean, you hit it. ESPN is reporting that ESPN may end up with all of the rights and put it on ESPN. I mean, it feels a little bit like propaganda. I like Samuel. I know him. I've known him for years, but I, you know, it feels to me like the ESPN PR team told him, Hey, you know, ESPN is negotiating and we want all of the rights. I think the best for college football would be a little bit like the NFL where, you know, you have playoff games in the NFL. Some of them are on Fox. Some of them are on other networks. Some of them, one of them's even on Peacock. You know, you need to be able to put games in different places where different people can find them. I think that's what's best for the game. I think that's what would be best for college football. I think ESPN has got too much control right now with the college football playoff show, the rankings released on their station, the SEC, their product. It just feels like uh, they're a little bit conflicted with their mission at times. And so I'd like to see it. You know, I'd like to see Fox, NBC, uh, ESPN, and maybe a streaming platform all get in on the playoffs. There's enough to go around, and there's 11 games in the 12-team in the playoff. That's plenty of product. You, uh, you make any plans to rub shoulders with McAfee while you're there at all? I noticed he has a cowboy hat on. I have not seen him. I, you know, I'm more interested in talking with Oregon coach Dan Lanning, who I'm told is hanging out, you know, with a couple of other Pac-12, uh, you know, representatives. Like I think Jen Cohen, the athletic director at USC, might be spending some time in in the same box that Lanning's in. I don't. I'm not making too much of that. I, I just think that the Pac-12 has got a suite, and I think uh, Rick George, the athletic director at Colorado, is in the house as well. So. It's kind of a farewell party, I think, for some of those Pac-12 personalities, including George Kwiatkowski, the commissioner, who is here. Yeah, it's like a bachelor party. They're all getting together for one last time before they lose. Uh, one last time on the company uh, dime. That's right. Hey, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> I was, was going to ask you, you, you mentioned Peacock, you know, uh, about ESPN, how it should be a streaming platform for the cultural playoff, maybe another network. Uh, the NFL is going to have a game streaming exclusively on Peacock this weekend. Uh what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's going to be a success? I think people are going to be signing up for that if they don't have it. Um, they get a little bit of backlash from uh, the older generation. I feel like my dad was asking me. Michigan fans, really. My dad, <laughs> yeah, my dad was asking me about Peacock if I have it. Like, how do you think that's going to go uh, this weekend for the first round of the playoffs and then going forward uh, just streaming with the sports networks? Well, I mean, it's becoming more normalized. We've, we've seen Amazon on Thursday nights, Peacock in the regular season. The, you know, the Sunday ticket on YouTube TV, they're normalizing streaming. Nobody's ready to go all in yet, but it's becoming much more part of what everybody does. And, and I think it's just been kind of interesting to see that happening. Um, I'll be curious to see, you know, how, what kind of ratings it gets, uh, what kind of reviews it gets afterwards. I think the feedback that I'm hearing on streaming in general is largely um, encouraging but you're right, there is a segment of the audience that's not comfortable, you know, doing what they haven't always done, which is to turn on TV and watch it. And so there's those kinds of conversations are probably happening everywhere. And mixed up in that, you know, guys, think about it for next season. Oregon State and Washington State have 13 home football games that still don't have a home. 
Oregon State's got seven of them, including the Civil War game, that they're going to be shopping around between now and next football season. You know, is it possible that, you know, Peacock or Apple could end up with a game or two? Would CBS or Fox want more of the Oregon State, Washington State inventory, or do they get enough because they're playing in those Mountain West Conference games? Is ESPN going to be a buyer? It'll be really interesting to see how Oregon State and Washington State sell the rights to their home football games. And I think Oregon State's schedule is far more interesting and attractive than Washington State's. Washington State does have a game against Texas Tech, but Oregon State's got Oregon at home, Purdue at home, They've got, you know, uh, the the other offering of the Mountain West games that will be at their place. Uh, I'm just not sure that Fox and CBS that own the Mountain West Conference, I'm not sure they're going to want to buy all of those games in, in the uh, event that Oregon State or Washington State don't end up being very good. So keep an eye on that. Maybe Peacock becomes a potential mm-hmm. one-off for the Civil War or for the Purdue game. Or, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see one game go go in a streaming direction. Yeah, wow, that is interesting. The business of sports is fascinating, and uh, you were writing about Adidas's role with the rise of Washington football here, and of course, Adidas and Nike, of course, in the backyard. Uh, Dame Lillard siding to hype up the the UW program as is well. That weird. Yeah, what do you think yeah, of all that, that? I think it's a little bit weird. I mean, Lillard was in town because the Bucks were playing the Rockets. Adidas doesn't really have a a face like Michael Jordan, right? They don't have Jordan, and so. You know, but the backstory is that, you know, Washington in 2017, 2018 was facing a huge deficit in their athletic department. Normally, these sneaker deals pay the schools about a million dollars in cash, and the rest is in product and apparel. But this deal with Adidas was very different. Jen Cohen, the AD at Washington, knew she needed cash, and she told Adidas, Do you, if you want to plant a flag right in front of Nike and in front of Oregon, why not do it at Washington? And Adidas bought in. They're paying more than $5 million a year in cash. They're, they're paying another 5 and a half to $6 million in product, another million dollars in marketing. It was a huge investment by Adidas. Now, Adidas had not had a team in the College Football Playoff National Championship game in this playoff era. So the last Adidas school to play for the title was 2013. That was Notre Dame that made the championship game. And so this is a big deal for an Adidas versus Nike rivalry, but it's a $119 million deal. And it really was a bold move by Adidas to kind of go at Washington because, you know, Washington was never going to get a deal better than Oregon with Nike. Like Nike was never going to come in and give Washington more money or better apparel. You know, they're always going to, they're always going to serve Oregon first. So it's a really interesting deal and I was told by somebody at Washington that that deal has paid off. If Washington wins tonight, there's a seven-figure bonus that goes to Washington from Adidas. So, you know, they'll get a big payday in addition to a, a trophy if they should win it. Talking about that, I also think about where Uncle Phil is tonight. What's he thinking watching this game? You know, what what is and Nike coming out? They're officially cutting ties with the Tiger Woods line and all that. And I know they're they're, you know, have a plan to shed some losses over the next couple of years. But for Phil in particular, what do you think he's thinking tonight? And when is when are we going to get back into the Blazers' ownership conversations with, with that side? I know. I know. It's really sad. It's really hard right now to watch the Blazers and to know that if they were in Phil Knight's uh, portfolio that they would be better off, right? We all know that. Um, Knight has to be watching this game and going, look, the window to win 
has never been, um, you know, more available to Oregon. If Washington can get in there, Oregon can get in there. Now, Oregon did get in there in 2015, but it is this tournament has largely been dominated by SEC and Big Ten teams and Clemson. And so now here comes this new expanded playoff. Like, if I'm Phil Knight, I'm going pedal to the metal. Uh, you're in an NIL world where you can essentially buy players. This is a uh, this is an era that was made for Phil Knight, and you know he's 87. Oregon wants to get him a national title. You've got Dan Lanning in place. You've got a recruiting class that is better, the best recruiting class in history. Uh, you know, so Dan Lanning, I think a little bit of pressure on him next season, and certainly an opportunity. And uh, you you watch Washington in this stage on this stage, and you you can't help but wonder how close Oregon is as their rival to being here themselves. Yeah, I'll get you out on this, John, and and uh, you're in Houston. Now, if memory serves, you've been in that building before for Super Bowl, right? Where, where, was it the yes. uh, Patriots-Panthers Super Bowl of 03 yes. or around there? Well, uh, does, any yeah. memories from that coming back to you, or what's yeah, it like as a venue? Yeah, do you remember? I think I've told this story before that I was here. It was the first Super Bowl that was held at this stadium. NRG Stadium was... Uh, built back in the day. I think, what was the original name? Was it called Reliant Stadium? That's right. right? Reliant. Reliant Stadium. Yeah. Okay, so I was telling two other media members about this earlier that, you know, the last, it wasn't the last time I was here, but it was the first time I was here. We all go in and, you know, the the stadium crew is great, but they're used to working Sundays and regular season NFL games or maybe a playoff game. They're not used to working a Super Bowl. And so at the end of the game, at the end of that Super Bowl, the stadium crew didn't know that there were like 30 media members were still working in the press box. They literally turned the lights off of the stadium, locked the gates and left. And when we came down from the press box, the gates are tall around the stadium. It's not like, you know, I, you know, I was a young man then I probably could have scaled it, but there were a lot of media members that couldn't got over that <laughs> gate. They locked us in the stamp stadium. And so I, I remember when I walked through the gates tonight, I said to the guy at the gate, I said, now don't lock us in tonight. You know, you know, we're up there working because we had to call somebody to come back to the stadium to unlock the uh, unlock the padlocks and let us out. Oh, Otherwise, like we would have been in there all off season. Yeah, yeah, a real office moment. Uh, that was the Janet Jackson halftime. I'm pretty sure. That, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that one. Well, yeah. it, it, Washington just slipped in a field goal, stalled in the red zone, so it's seven to three. We'll look, get you back to covering the game, John. Okay. But uh, really appreciate it, and we'll. Look forward to having you back on the air tomorrow. Uh, safe travels back. Hopefully okay, nice and easy lot. compared to uh, getting okay. there. <laughs> Appreciate you guys. Thank you. There he is, John Cazzano. Follow him on social media at John Cazzano BFT. It is Michigan 7-3 after one possession each side. And that field goal did just uh, slip in the uprights for a nice little 25-yard field goal or so. It was a chip shot, but uh, <sighs> made you... <laughs> Hair on your back stood up. But that if you're story, I mean, fan. that happened in the office, right? There was that office episode where they get locked out of the building and they had to call the you know, the security guy back. Am I, am I misremembering you, this? No, that's exactly yeah, right. That's what, that's what made me think of right there. Uh, Jim uh, forgot to call Hank, the security guy. <laughs> Hank. He's like, no, his name's not, uh, his name's not Hank. Uh, what is it? Uh, Roger? What is it? Hey, Chief. Yeah, all that. I feel like every, every live moment can go back to like a Seinfeld or an office episode. Pretty much. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know how you would characterize the start of this game, but I'd say advantage Michigan, obviously, on the scoreboard. It's 7-3. Michigan kind of controlled their first drive. They got sacked on a first down, but then explosive run play for a touchdown from Edwards. And then Washington got all the way inside the red zone 
but stalled out, ran the ball on first and second down, and set them up for kind of a third and goal that was uh, well defended. So Dylan Johnson did, in fact, play, got the first carry of the game, went out because of an injury, but went back in, uh, when they made a quick quick visit to the to the tent, you know, the medical tent they got over there. I uh, was in there for about, you know, 10 seconds and then started running out again, so they must have given him something real nice in there to uh, numb whatever he was feeling. But uh, interesting, I thought, with Washington, their first drive there, Judah, they took a lot of time off the clock. And then they did not get a seven out of it. I think those are the type of things that if you're Washington, you got to try to you got to convert those into touchdowns when you take six minutes off the clock, just like Michigan did uh, to get that tutty. But we'll see what happens as we're going forward uh, here in the first quarter. Michigan up seven three in the national title game. Anytime you can hold Michigan to a field goal should be a win for Washington, a field goal or less. Uh, and then they'll they'll get their explosives. You double get their explosives. But you're right, touchdowns are at a premium. Uh, we'll go to break and come back. We'll play a little punch it audio and get some NFL playoff thoughts out along the way. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn in for John Cazzano. John joined us in the 3, 4, and 5 o'clock hour live from Houston where he's covering the national championship game where it's Michigan leading 7-3 early. We'll talk some more NFL when we come back right here on the Bald Face Truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 7-50, the game. Well, I got the uh, NFL playoffs are officially set. Talked to Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic a little bit ago, and uh, we're talking about the end of the Seahawks season, 9-8. and eight. Same record as last year. I, you know, it's funny. Like, Michael Sean says that Seattle was definitely not a better team this year than last year, and he points to point differential. I, I'm not as big on point differential for a you know, a few reasons. I, I think that disparity is certainly not great, but I don't draw the same conclusion that Seattle wasn't a better team than last year. You know, last year, pff, there was so much, you know, um, unpredictable uh, enjoyment out of that season. This year, there were expectations, and, you know, they didn't meet those expectations. Th- th- he is right. They shelled out money on defense, and the defense did not perform. I mean, whether it's the Draymond Jones signing, the Leonard Williams acquisition, whatever they're playing, Jamal Adams these days, bringing Bobby Wagner back. Like, none, none of it worked. None of it worked. Um, Devin Witherspoon had playmaking moments. There's something to be excited about there. But even him, he was out for a little while. And at the end of the day, you know, you got no teeth in run defense, as we're seeing with the Washington Huskies right now. <laughs> uh, then you're going to be in trouble. Um, and... Uh, Michigan up 14 to three and just held Washington on a third down. So you uh, double probably have to punt it back down 14, three already. So not looking good for the PAC 12ers uh, in this one early on, but you know, for the Seahawks nine and eight, nine and eight, I'm sure Pete Carroll will be back. I'm hoping there will be a change at defensive coordinator. I think someone like Brandon Staley would be great. You know, little, uh, you know, fail as a head coach, but no, he's got chops as a DC. Yes, he did it with Aaron Donald and the Rams defense, but I think Brandon Staley would be good. I, I think because that, that way you're still keeping that kind of scheme thing going with the, the odd front and the more modern pass defense than what Pete was rocking with the, uh, you know, the press man cover three era of the Legion of Boom. So I don't know, someone like that, but I think Clint Hurt, great guy, nice guy. I just think he's in over his head as a defensive play caller. And that's my kind of take on the Seahawks. 
you watched all the Week 18 action, uh, Stephen, and you watched the Seahawks from a more removed standpoint than me, even though I try to be objective. You know, Cincinnati finished 9-8. and eight. A lot of that with Jake Browning doing some work with them. I thought Zach Taylor did a really uh, bang-up coaching job with the Bengals down the stretch. Um, I got to dial up some other of those 9-8 and eight teams uh, that have the same record as the Seahawks, and you tell me if if that's what the Seahawks feel like to you. The Buccaneers and the Packers were nine and eight. By the way, if anyone's wondering, hey, why are the Packers, you know, in over the Seahawks? You had to go to the fourth level of tiebreakers with the Packers and Seahawks. Strength of victory is what puts the Packers ahead of the Seahawks. They didn't play each other, so you didn't have the head to head. Um, they had the same record in the NFC. Uh, Green Bay finished seven and five. Seattle finished seven and five. They had the same record in common games which they played six games of common opponents. Each of them went three and three. You had to go to the fourth level of tiebreakers to find the Packers-Seahawks tiebreak. Green Bay gets it on strength of victory, and therefore they are in with the final spot. But I give you Seahawks, Saints, Packers, Buccaneers. Is there any difference between any of those teams in your mind? Is there a clear team that's better than one or the other, or do you think the Seahawks deservedly are in that batch and you know, they're not in the batch above them of teams at least going forward, like the Rams. I think going forward, I look at those teams in the NFC, and I would put the Packers ahead of all of them, and mainly because, you know, of Jordan Love. It's Jordan Love and just the potential that he has shown. You know, he ended up with, you know, over 30 touchdowns. I believe he was third in the NFL in touchdown passes. Like, that's the difference. I, you know, Geno is a, he's a good, solid quarterback. Um, and you guys touched on that, you and uh, Michael Sean touched on that in, during the interview. Geno's fine, it's not a Geno problem. But at the same time, like, is he going to be the guy that's going to elevate you to that next level? I don't know if he's going to elevate you, but I think he can win at a high level if you surround him with the you know a perfect team around him. Where I think if you look at a Jordan Love, he may be a guy that can elevate guys around him. Now he still has some talent around him as well, uh, but but that would be my difference. I do put him more in the category of the Bucks and the Saints, where yeah, they can win some games and they can maybe make the playoffs, but it's kind of like uh, you know Oregon State. I felt like where it's it's uninspiring, right? Like you're never going to get to that next level right now with what they've got. And so I think for Seattle, you're going to have to make the decision. Like, is Gino the guy going forward? Can we get the roster around Gino Smith to work perfectly? And I think there's a possibility you could do that. Um, or is it like you said, maybe look in the draft, maybe look and try to get the trade for a young, young quarterback, someone to build with later on and go that route. I don't know which one would be better. Uh, you would be better to answer that question, but I do think right now, the nine and eight record for the Seahawks this season, it seemed like a lot of just it, it just was uninspiring, right? Like the, it wasn't a lot of you know jaw dropping moments of oh this team could make a run. It's like even if this team gets in the playoffs, I don't see them making a run. Where you look at a team like the Rams, they maybe they make a run. Like that's a team that could make a run in the playoffs because of what they got going on around them. In our final segment, we'll do our quick reaction. What was your first blink reaction to the playoff games and matchups, and uh, and whip through some of those. Uh, in the meantime, you know, we'll launch off that and play a little punch it audio, some of the best sound from all around today. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Great Sunday night game last night, Bills-Dolphins, and everything changed with this special team's play for Buffalo in the fourth quarter. Punch it. So Miami will punt. 
back-to-back -back possessions. Jake Bailey with a big punt. Sends Deontay Hardy all the way back to the five. Has some space. Takes off. Look out, Hardy. Gets a block downfield. Hardy's going to go. He's in midfield. Nobody's going to catch him. Deontay Hardy, 95 yards. Pretty amazing moment. The Bills used that to get to a 21-14 win. Things got hairy late. Intense, hard-fought football game. Collinsworth was in fine form. Love to see that. How dangerous is Buffalo in the AFC playoffs? Look, I, you know, I've said this before. I have a Buffalo ticket to win the Super Bowl. I have a Buffalo ticket to win the AFC. Twenty-two to one to win the Super Bowl. Eleven to one to win the AFC. I feel good about it. But I will say this, Judah. This is what Buffalo does. They make mistakes. Josh Allen's gonna make a mistake or two or three or four, just like he did last night against the Dolphins. And when you play a good team. Can you do that? They can get to the AFC title game. But if he plays like they did last night in Baltimore, that's a problem. You're not going to win that game. If you play a team like Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes, who is maybe the best quarterback of all time, you can't make those mistakes and win these games in the playoffs. So I think Buffalo is a real contender. I think they're one of a handful of teams that really can get to the Super Bowl legitimately and win it. But, man, they have to figure it out. Josh Allen has to figure it out. If I don't make mistakes... We are as talented and as good as any team in the NFL if I don't make, make mistakes around us. And we saw the defense shut down that Miami Dolphins offense. We saw the special teams do some things. We know how you know explosive that offense can be. Now they have Dalton Kincaid in there too. Man, he's a baller. Like, If they don't make mistakes, they may be the best team in the NFL. But right now, I love what Josh Allen does, but man, he can throw you out of ball games. He's got to, he's got to rear, rear it in. He taketh. And... Uh and giveth away like it's good to be aggressive but he's almost too aggressive to a fault speaking of aggressive uh saints falcons <laughs> victory formation at the goal line oh let's run the ball and get an extra touchdown on top of it oh arthur smith was hopping mad as brian wheeler would say oh he's hopping bad he's bewildered was he more mad because he knew he was gonna get fired at uh 1202 I don't know if he knew that or not, but um, how know, about that though? He real, was real quick, and bemused. Black Monday, twelve oh two. The Falcons, is that what happened? Twelve oh two Eastern. Twelve oh two Eastern time. Falcons sent out a press release saying Arthur Smith is gone. I mean that. that Arthur blankety blank. That that is uh that is a little bit of a craziness right there. Like so, they had it ready to go. Jamison Winston, as our friend Mike in Portland would say, Jamison Winston had this to say about. Giving the ball to the running back Jamal Williams, punch it. The play was was victory, uh, but I also explained to Da that it was a team decision. And I asked the guys, I said, guys, like, what do you, what do you want to do? Yeah. We know how much Jamal means to this team, and D Da didn't condone that at all. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't. However, uh, we decided as a team to do it, and man, we got an interception to the one yard line. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so if 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 we would have scored, would it still would have been disrespectful? Right. You know, it's about the team. It's not about regrets. It's not about anything else. It's about us as a team making a collective decision. But I do apologize to Dennis. I apologize to DA because that was not his call. That is, there's so much about this that I think is fascinating and funny. And you know what? I, I count him on Jameis's side. <laughs> not, not you, Steven? No, not even a little bit. I just think it's great to have the balls to be like, you know what? We're just going to score a touchdown on these guys anyway with Jamal Williams. Now, it's it, don't get me wrong. It's I'm not saying it's not Bush League. It is Bush League. I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> okay, I'm going to count. Who does it hurt? 
Who does it hurt? I will counter that, and I will tell you who it hurts. This is Damian Woody, former uh, NFL center, talking okay. about the whole situation as well. Uh, he explains who it could hurt and why this is bad on Jameis Winston. And I think it was absolute bullshit what he did. Because <laughs> once you line up in victory formation, everyone knows, like, okay, the white flag is up. We're chilling. Someone could get hurt in that situation. Like, seriously. And I would have told Jameson, I'm like, bro, no, I'm not cool with this. Like, that whole thing playing out, it just made you think to yourself, like, maybe that's why this guy's a f***ing loser. Maybe that's why this guy flamed out in Tampa. That's the vibe that I get when you do, stomach, do something like that. Everybody will say, oh it's, no, oh, it's no big deal. He just, they just did a little run play on victory formation. Why are you getting so amped up about it? Because I think it reveals who you are. Like, you went directly against the coach and, 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 and the play call. You can get hurt big time. I mean, the defensive guys aren't even trying. They're just standing there, and the offensive yeah. line explodes. That's that's who it's going to hurt. The the That I grant you. Everything else doesn't matter to me. Who is Who still has to make up their mind about Jameis Winston? We all know who he is anyway. You're playing to the final whistle, though. That's, that's a we, newbie status. Yeah, right. We don't, you play we, four quarters. Like, the decision for me, for Jameis, that doesn't make me change my mind about crab leg Winston. Eating, eating victories off of his fingers. We know he's kind of crazy and not a starter in the NFL and not like a guy you build a team. Like, we already had those conclusions. That doesn't change that. His being kind of a dunce and being dumb or being, you know, he asked his team. They were all for it. Victory formation against guys that can get hurt. Yeah, that's a problem That to me. I, I will grant the injury part of that, but all the other part of that, maybe this is why he doesn't work. Well, no, no, no kidding. He hasn't worked out. He's not a rookie. He's been in the league for what seven years? Like that's not revelatory at all, Damian Woody. But I I get the point. Uh, let's go elsewhere. Let's go. Anthony Simons talking about being aggressive in the fourth quarter. He leads the NBA in clutch points per game. He does. Yeah. Oh. Now he's only been in uh, six games that have had clutch moments in it though. Punch it. <laughs> uh, probably like you know the third, third, probably third or fourth quarter. We said we was down a little bit. I was able to get it going, hit two two big threes in the third, and it just kind of carried out in the fourth quarter. That's when I'm most aggressive. Um, that's when I want to make plays. They was double teaming me. I was getting it out. And like I said, Shaden and Malcolm came up big for us. You know what I mean? Getting those, getting those back baskets when we need them. So they were in Brooklyn and got the win over a uh, not great Nets team, 134-127 in OT on the heels of two blowouts in Dallas. What do you make of the Blazers in the last uh, week or so? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I've been a guy that has been, I would say, lower on Anthony Simons than a lot of people, uh, a lot of Blazer fans, and uh, he, he's proving to be a really good scorer. And offensively, you know, last night he had 11 assists. He's turned into a really good player. Uh, the whole cl- the whole clutch stats thing. So the last five minutes of every game, if the score is within five points, that's considered clutch, a clutch moment in the NBA. Uh, Anthony Simons has been in six games on the season where that has been a part of it. He's been on the court. He averages 6.3 points per game in that situation. That's over a point more than anybody else in the league, shooting 59%. So he's a guy that who has he's stepped up in the bigger moments when they need him to, and I think that's part of his evolution. For right now, for the Blazers, though, Shaden Sharp is back healthy. Scoot Henderson's playing the best ball he's played of his career. Anthony Simons is playing the best ball of his career. They have too many guys at the guard positions. No and, way. And one has the to, Trailblazers. And one has to come off the bench. Who's it going to be? Where's the playing time go? I think. Going I think forward, you got to bench Rudy Fernandez. I mean, <laughs> Sergio. Where, you know, Sergio. You know, X. Is that what? What was his nickname again? Sergio. Rodriguez. Chichi. 
Wasn't it Chichi? No. Could have been. I don't know. I can't remember. But Chichi Rodriguez was a golfer. Chichi Gonzalez was a pitcher as well. Sergio had a nickname. I can't remember what it was. Well, you figure that out. But the Blazers got too many guards. They got to figure out what they're going to do. But they, some, look, some look good. Uh, the, the defense has fallen off at the last couple of games. Chauncey seems to have lost that part of the team. So I, you know, the Blazers are going to lose a lot of games. But I think you can look at Anthony Simons and say, all right, this guy is a legitimately good player on offense. Defensively is another question. But he also is making shots in clutch times. And I think that's part of an evolution that you need to have to become you know, a quote-unquote star player or a franchise player is make these clutch shots because we've had it so often when Dame was here. Like, ball's going to Dame, ball's going up, ball's going in. And I think that right now, Anthony Simons is kind of at that level where he takes shots in the fourth quarter and you think it's going in. Draymond Green said that, man, he was thinking about retiring, but Adam Silver talked him out of it. Punch it. I had a conversation with Adam Silver, commissioner of our league. I just told him, Adam, it's too much for me. Like, this is too much. It's all becoming too much for me, and I'm going to retire. And Adam said, ah, you're making a very rash decision, and I won't let you do that. You know, we had a long, great conversation, very helpful to me, very thankful uh, to play in a league with a commissioner like Adam, uh, who's more about helping you than hurting you or helping you than punishing you or you know he's more about the players how good does that make adam silver look in your opinion i i can't stand i can't stand this whole thing draymond green was never going to retire he just signed a hundred million dollar contract if he retires he doesn't get that money knew who wasn't retiring draymond green like this whole thing is for clicks, is for content for Draymond Green's podcast that he just renegotiated with, that they got a deal done. I just I can't stand the off the court drama in the NBA, and that and I love the NBA. I used to work with the Blazers, like I watch the NBA, I cover the Blazers. This is what the NBA has become. It's become an off court drama league, and that's all people care about. They don't care about the stuff on the court, and this is the mainly reason why is like. Guys like Draymond Green who say, I'm going to retire because I punched Yusuf Nurkic in the face and I can't take it anymore. Well, don't punch people in the face, bro. Like, you weren't going to retire and just give up $100 million. Like, don't do this. I just, I don't know. I can't stand the whole thing, but I guess if it's true, it's a good look for Adam Silver. But, I, you know, I don't think Draymond's going to change anything. He's going to go out there and play the same way he's played for 34 years of his life. That's just what he's going to do. That makes a lot of sense. I, I agree. I think it's a load of crap that Draymond was actually going to retire. He probably was, you know, feeling the weight of everything. I'll grant him that, but not really retire. Yeah, like he was upset that he got suspended indefinitely for punching a guy in the face, but you weren't going to retire and give up $100 million. That's just not what you were going to do. Adam Silver, you know, he's got this. He, you know, had a one-on-one with John Morant. You know, you got to be a relationship broker, I guess, a little bit as an NBA commissioner, which is not an enviable position, but I think that is kind of interesting to have a commissioner that's good at relating with guys, you know, but who really cares at the end of the day? Just don't get in trouble. Be good people. Be good citizens. Just stop punching people. Stop punching you, you sick. <laughs> like I like I love talking face. like we talked about the Blazers before. Like I love talking about the on the court stuff and what's going on with the stats. But in the NBA it's mostly John Morant gun stuff. It's Draymond Green yeah. suspensions. And it's about fake trades that people are gonna come up with. Oh, and, people love fake trades. And that's what the NBA is. It's all on paper. And it's not even about the court. And that's the one thing I hate about the NBA. I will say that. Yeah, I will say that's caused me to kind of tune out regular season basketball at times. doesn't help that the Blazers are not good and only pay attention to the lottery, draft, and playoffs. 
You yeah. Know? And, and hey, then who, you look up and you wonder why you lost Christmas to the NFL. It's like, the, what? It's and then not, the question is, who can the Blazers trade for draft picks? Like, yeah. that's the question. It's not even like, oh, can they develop? Like, what is Anthony Simons doing on the court that's well? No, it's, well, can we trade someone for another draft pick? Because that's what they need. That's Punch It Audio. We'll go to break. And when we come back, whip around the NFL playoff matchups. What are our initial picks and leans on these games of Super Wildcard Weekend? Which, by the way, we'll have the play-by-play from Westwood One on your flagship of the BFT Radio Network, 750 The Game, and streaming at 750thegame.com. Judah Newby, Stephen Vaughn, back for a final segment on the Boldface Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Boldface Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Super wild card weekend this weekend, Stephen. Week 18 came and went. So I'm still getting used to seven teams in the AFC and NFC going. I'm still getting used to the 18-game regular season just a little bit, only because I, I freaking love football. I love the NFL. I love the NFL playoffs. Live for this stuff, man, as a sports fan. Like, this is what it is all about. But, you know, you get yourself ready for the cadence of it all. You get two games Saturday. The first Saturday game is the Houston Texans hosting the Cleveland Browns. Then the second Saturday game, the Saturday night game, it's only on Peacock. Um, You know, you got the Chiefs hosting the Dolphins in very, very cold Kansas City. Sunday, Buffalo uh, hosting Pittsburgh in what is an interesting game. That that betting line was way too big when I saw it last. It was like at 10. I don't know where it's at now. Um, It'll be cold, cold weather in Buffalo Sunday morning. We go to the friendly confines of Dallas for Packers-Cowboys Sunday afternoon. Matthew Stafford's Detroit returns Sunday night. Jared Goff, Sean McVay revenge game will be fascinating. Monday night is the perfect Monday night playoff game. It always is that. Every year, I feel like it's been that four versus five NFC game. The first year it was Rams-Cardinals, the four-five game. Last year it was Bucks-Cowboys, the four-five game. This year it's Eagles-Bucks, the four-five game. And second straight year, it's been the uh, NFC South champ against the NFC East wild card. Let's rip through these things, Stephen. Let's start in order these chronological games. Houston, Cleveland. When you first saw the line, what do you think, and who do you think wins as of right now? Well, first saw the line, it was uh, it had to have been yesterday. I looked, and uh, it was Browns minus two. Browns favored by two points. That's on the what road I saw Houston. as well. Yeah. Now I'm looking at it, and it's uh, Browns are minus three. And uh, it is trending even uh, it's trending that direction to maybe even more to get to three and a half. Uh, Browns be favored on the road at Houston. I I like Houston in this game, Judah. I I, I call me uh, a hater of Joe Flacco. I'm not ready to say he's elite yet. He's 38 I years just old. Think that's such a funny sentence. <laughs> he's 38 years old. I'm not ready to call him elite quite yet. Uh, so maybe when he's 38. Yeah. I think CJ Stroud is elite, though. So show me um, more, Joe. I, I, the Browns even we've been on the Browns all season. Like you and me have been talking all season in the NFL. We're like the Browns are actually really good, but I think without you know that, that quarterback, I know they just beat the Texans, but man, what CJ Stroud did, what that defense did against the Colts on the road in a you know in a playoff environment to win in Indianapolis, I think that line's wrong. I think it should be yeah. less than three. So I'll definitely be on the on the on the Texans side in that one. Saturday night. You know, Chiefs-Dolphins, this is going to be cold, cold weather. Like right now on the iPhone, it says it's going to be 
two degrees in Kansas City on uh, Saturday night. It's colder. That's like really freaking cold, man. Well, I guess it'll be a high of 18 degrees, low of two. Sunday is a low of two degrees. So Saturday night's going to be really, really cold. Miami, I'm trying to find a case. This is the Tyreek Hill revenge game, which is going to be fun. I'm not ruling Miami out of it. I mean, because they could still run the football at times, but Kansas City defensively is... Very, very good. Best defense they've had so far in the Mahomes era. I think that puts them over the top in this game. Yeah, you won't catch me betting on Miami in this one. I don't know what, what the spread would have to be, but Tua's first playoff game, Miami's just been banged up. Waddle didn't play last week, uh, yesterday against the Bills. Mostert didn't play against the Bills. Like I just think Miami's in a tough spot, man. They needed that win over Buffalo to get a home game. And now you're saying, hey, Tua, you know, with his arm that isn't necessarily the strongest, go play in this two-degree weather on the road against Patrick Mahomes in your first playoff game. Uh, they've failed in every big game they've had this season except for the Cowboys win. Uh, but every other game, they have failed miserably. Every big game, think back to Philadelphia, think to uh, Kansas City early in the year. They've lost to a lot of good teams. They've lost to good teams. They've like, beaten some mediocre teams. And I think that's going to happen again. I, I, give me the Chiefs and give me the Chiefs uh, pretty decently sized. All right. You like to lay it. Uh, what do you? Where do you come out? When I saw Bills minus 10 against the Steelers, I was like, I'll, I'll play Steelers plus 10. I've seen them up close a few times lately. It's a different team with Mason Rudolph. Not really because of his passing, but they the offense is responding to him way better. No TJ Watt. That's a problem. Pittsburgh will not win. But I think they can keep it feisty with a Bills team that's a little up and down. I agree. This this reminds me of the Dolphins-Bills playoff game last year, right? Skylar Thompson gets the start, and Miami got up early, and then they forced a turnover, got a defensive touchdown, your favorite thing, and uh, and then the, you know, the Bills end up winning the ball game. But I, I agree with you. I think Pittsburgh can hang close. And it's going to kind of be like this Michigan-Washington game where you know Pittsburgh's going to try to run the football. Najee's running the ball really well as of late. My brother's a Steeler fan. He's loving the way. Najee's running the football. They got Jalen Warren as well. Like I saw it firsthand. Yeah, years you ago. saw it against the Seahawks. So I, I think I think Pittsburgh can run the football a little bit on this Buffalo Bills team, shorten the possessions, make Josh Allen make a mistake or two, as he's prone to do, and keep this game somewhat close. Bills win, but uh, I'll take the 10. I think Green Bay can keep it feisty with Dallas. I just look at Dallas's offense at home, and it's going to be too much, I think, for the Green Bay defense to overcome. But Jordan loves a dude, and I think we have to we have to say that now. Or is it too early? What do you think? No, he's a dude. Call, call me crazy. Uh, Green Bay's live in this game. Green Bay's live to win this game. Cowboys have been great at home, undefeated at home this season. But, again, Aaron Jones, healthy, three straight 100-yard games. He looks great. Jordan Love throwing off his back foot, looking like dude, Aaron Rodgers out there. Like, dude can sling it. Jaden Reed, good receiver. Really good arm talent. Jordan really Love. good. I, I, I like this Packers team. I think they keep it close. I think they can win this game. Uh, I'll be a Man. little bit of sprinkling money. Yeah, I think it's smart, especially fade Mike McCarthy in a playoff game, that right? Too. In the pa- I mean, so much revenge juice in uh, Wild Card Weekend. McCarthy Packers, Stafford Lions. Let's go to that one. I mean, I- I'm picking the Rams to win this game. I mean, yeah. I'm just going to do it. I have that much you love, the Rams, love for McVay and-, and Stafford. Like, I see him too much too often to not think they'll pull this one out. I saw today the tickets in Detroit, cheapest to get in the building, 602 bucks. More than double, oh. more than double of any other playoff game. So the crowd is going to be insane for that one. Um, and I'm with you though. I think the Rams come in and win that game. Give me Sean McVay in these situations. Puka Nakua, uh, Cooper Cub. Give me McVay to win this on outright. I, I love the Rams. And then the uh, Sunday. Well, that is the Sunday night one. So Monday night, I I'm picking the Bucks. Like right now, Philly's that bad, dude. Philly is that bad. I do not see them blinking and turning it around. Bucks aren't good, 
But um, I think they find a way to win this one. Jalen, is he healthy? Is A.J. Brown healthy? They, is, dude, they've been bad. Weird. They've been bad the last like month and a half, man. I. But am I really going to go Baker Mayfield? Like again, he, he might not be healthy. He's not healthy. They scored nine points against the Panthers. They, Panther, Panther defense. Uh, they just beat the Panthers nine to zero, Judah. I mean, let's they in won, a game they had to have. in a game they had to have against that the defense, two Panthers. So I don't. I I think I'm going to go Bucks, and I'm going to feel <laughs> terrible about it. It's going to be so fun. All right, we'll we'll talk about it throughout the rest of the week. John Kazana will be flying back um, tomorrow and hosting the show. He'll be back on here tomorrow, three to six p.m. Michigan currently leads by uh, 14, middle second quarter. We'll see if that holds. Talk about it all with you tomorrow, 3 to 6, right here on The Bald Face Truth. How about a simple New Year's resolution? One where you're guaranteed to succeed. Reverse the clock on hair loss with Advanced Hair's simple one-day treatment. You'll feel more confident and more youthful when you witness your own natural hair growing into those places where it's been balding or thinning for years. From Advanced Hair's breakthrough technology to their highly experienced team, there is no one I trust more in hair restoration. Their simple FUE treatment begins to regrow your own natural hair the very next day. And your new hair is backed by the Advanced Hair Guarantee. Simply put, Advanced Hair's exceptional standard of care makes your comfort and your results their top.